which top-tier starting pitcher wouldn't you start against the mighty Yankees? I'll ask Jason Collette about that and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 24th. It's show number 24 of the 2022 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature expert interview with Jason Collette from Rotowire and the Sleeper and the Bust podcast discussing which top starters he'd start, or wouldn't, against the Yankees. About finding stolen bases, about summer slugging, We'll have injury management, players like O'Neill Cruz and Jack Suwinski, and of course, his boons and banes. We'll have our Market Watch player news reports. Harold Nichols has coverage of the National League, including a pitching shakeup for the Mets, an outfield shakeup for the Brewers, and the arrival of a potential star in Pittsburgh. And Ray Murphy has news from the American League, including injuries roiling the lineups in Chicago, Tampa, and Boston. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the frequent flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Arizona outfielder Stone Garrett. And in extra innings, I'll be talking about some feel-good stories in a week when we could use some feel-good in our lives. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday Full Edition, it's part one of our feature expert interview with Jason Collette from Rotowire and the Sleeper and the Bust podcast. Jason, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, thanks for having me back. How you been? I've been well. Uh, I know you're going through some technical difficulties with the Google Meets and things like that, so I'm grateful that you could get it all rolling, and I'm glad you joined the show. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, apologies in advance if there's any uh, brief uh, interruptions because some reason Google Meets decides it wants to pause every now and then on me, and it's right when I'm making the best point ever. Is, yeah, isn't on it call. always so? Apologies in advance to the listeners. <laughs> you, if you're going to have it do that, you want it to be when you're going blah, 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 or like me saying that Max Scherzer's pitching for the Nationals, and that's when you want it to quit on you. But of course, it never does. It turns itself up or something to amplify yes. your flaws. Okay. Uh, how many drafts are you playing this year, Jason? And how are your teams doing? Too many. I'm in 10. Uh, and let's see, going down the run, I am in second place in the AFL Speakers League, trailing Jeff Zimmerman. I'm in second place in a, in a draft champions league. I'm in fifth in TGFBI and fifth in another uh, draft champions. Uh, I'm in 10th in uh, my Rotowire OC. Then in labor and talent, those both the AL versions. I'm seventh and tenth respectively. And then in my home leagues, I'm eight, uh, eight out of fifteen. I I'm an expansion team in a league, and I'm sixteenth out of eighteen in that one. And then I'm sixth out of eleven in my AL home league. So uh, too many leagues. Uh, pretty happy with especially the draft champion format this year. Uh, but it's the the single league formats. Not very happy with them, and the OC obviously not happy with that either. Oh, you're trailing Jeff Zimmerman. There's no shame in that. Uh, Jeff Zimmerman's a really good player, and he's doing really well again this year in a lot of contests. I was just looking the other day. Uh, Draft Champions Leagues, for those of our listeners who aren't familiar, what is the format, and what do you like about it? So, uh, and and honestly, I had not played 
uh, more than one. I think I had done one until this year, and now I'm in um, three this year. But it's 50 rounds, draft and hold. So you draft, and, and the ones I did were all early, too. I mean, these were all, like, December. And I love doing them that uh, doing them then because you're specking on things. I and mean, you can get a guy, like, I, I want to say I got – Michael Lorenzen in the 46th round in one of these. So it's like you're, you're specking on things that could happen. And, and it gets it really as a, as a writer and somebody who does things all throughout the season. What I love about the draft champions is it challenges you to look at the entirety of the player pool. You know, often we get focused on, on publishing content that's for 12 team mixed leagues or, you know, like ESPN went into the 10 team mixed league format. Um, but yeah, I know that there are a lot of listeners. There's a lot of readers that play in deeper leagues and it, a draft champion. If it's 12 teams and, and 50 per that's 600. And so it really challenges you to start looking all the way down into the player pool to see what's down there. Like I have, Tyler Beatty on two draft champions teams because like he was left. Uh, and so it gets down. It, it just really challenges you to do uh, the dive deep into the player pool and look at some things and try to take some late round specs, but that's your team. Uh, and it, it forces you to draft some balance um, because you know, all you're doing the rest of the season is in season management, no fab to worry about nothing. It's like, that's your roster. That's what you have to do. And, you know, you, you have to draft four catchers. You may not want to, and even four catchers may not even be enough. Uh, because you can have three catcher injuries and all of a sudden you're carrying an injured catcher because you have no replacement, but you know, it is the way it is. So it's, it's kind of a, uh, a survival game by the end of the season. It's whoever did the most job of, uh, of, of hitting specs, um, drafting enough depth and balance, um, and playing time projections. And just so we're clear, this is a, uh, a best ball type of format, your best 14 hitters each week, the computer figures out and your best nine no. pitchers, or is it everybody scores? You have to set your own lineup every week. Uh, and with oh. hitters, you can do them twice a week, but you have to set your own lineup. I wondered about that because uh, I know that one of the big appeals of draft and holds for a lot of people is that they don't have to manage them. They just, maybe once or twice a year, you have a fab run and and that's, that's that, but you're, you're putting a lineup out there every week. So in a way that's kind yeah. of a hassle, but in another way, it kind of combines the advantage that you mentioned earlier of uh, having to have knowledge of the entire playing pool and having this enormous roster, which is good for you preseason to set you up for the season, but having to set your lineups in season keeps you a little bit connected with what's going on in the leagues in real life, in real time. Uh, indeed. And the other piece, uh, and as I say this, you know, there are the, the three leagues I'm in are 15 teams. So we're talking 750 players deep into the player pool and not 600. So that's where it's, you know, again, 750. I'm drafting guys. Uh, I have guys that are already out for the year injured. Minor league um, specs like Colby White in the Tampa Bay organization was supposed to be a high leverage reliever, ended up getting hurt really early um, into the season, out for the year. So it's like I have that dead spot on my roster, and I have to carry that all year. Uh, and there have been times, like last week, I had one healthy pitcher that I could put in my lineup uh, to, to swap out a, a really bad matchup. Uh, and I had one guy, and it was like, do I leave that really bad matchup in there, or do I put this middle reliever in there? Because that's it. Everybody else on my team at that point uh, was either on the IL uh, or is out for the year, uh, and I couldn't use them. So I, I really enjoy this format. I may actually drop some of the reset leagues and do more draft champions next year. Yeah, it is an interesting format, and I've never played it except in uh, the Raz Slam Invitational, which is a, a 
kind of a variant of that. We do get a couple of moves during the year, and then it's a cut line also, or the bottom half of the league is just dropped at certain points, and then they do it again and finally get down to some kind of uh, final thing. You mentioned uh, you were allowed to draft uh, minor leaguers? Yeah, you'd, well, you'd have anybody to, that's in the NFBC player pool, yeah, anybody that's in the system uh, that could be taken. So you can take your... Uh, you know, you can take your darts whenever you want to, to, to throw them, but anybody that they have in the player pool is available to you. Did you get any rookies who really hit for you, Julio Rodriguez or guys like that? Uh, no, I didn't. I didn't get in that aspect. I mean, when I look at none of them really hit. That's the crazy thing. Uh, when I look back, like I would say, you know, I would say at the highest hit rate uh i'm looking back like i got clark schmidt in the 43rd round uh and that and he's been usable in one league and then in the other looking back i, I mentioned michael lorenzo i got michael lorenzo in the 49th round and that's been extremely usable to me um but i didn't have any stephen kwan in the 39th round cal raleigh in the 38th round uh so those have had hits but like i took tristan cassis in the 35th round i'm still waiting on that one to start uh, but yeah, I didn't have any other rookies that I was able to, uh, that I got, that I drafted where, where everybody else was taking them. But late rounds, I did have a couple of really nice hits, uh, you know, Chad Pinder in the 43rd round, um, he's been usable. Uh, and so that's, what's helped me uh, be successful in two of those DCs. Well, when you look at your more successful teams, what is the common thread or threads? Uh, I would say in both of the second place teams, the fact that I took Jose Ramirez third overall in both of them, and then also took Jazz Chisholm in the sixth and seventh round, respectively, in two of those. So I have those two guys, and that was part of my my build plan when I sat back. I said, okay, I've got the third, and I did these two draft champions, I think, within a week of one another. And so I liked how Jose Ramirez... Yeah, there was a lot of uncertainty in, in the top four or five, which way you guys were going to go this year. But for me, I wanted all the volume I could get. And he was the one guy that I could look at with volume. And then remember, at the time when we were drafting over the winter, there was talks about him being traded somewhere. Uh, and so, you know, even then I was like, either way, I'm golden here. So I took him in both. Uh, I took the I know Chaz uh, Chisholm has a, a risk profile. And there was all the talk last year about how awesome he was in April. Then he got hurt. Then he came back and he was not the same guy. Um, and more on that later, but yeah, I have him in both leagues. So that certainly helped. And then getting some really good batting average anchors later, I took Luis Arise in the 23rd round in one of those. And I took Andres Jimenez in the 23rd in the other one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because Arias was gone, Arias was somebody that I was looking at, uh, in the end game all over the league this year. Um, and I have him in multiple teams, but in that, in that one DC, I had to go with Andres Jimenez because he wasn't there. And then having enough pitching, uh, again, with, in that draft champions format, you have to draft 20-plus pitchers. And I think in, in both of them, I have uh, either 22 or 23 pitchers to absorb uh, the injuries. And that's what's kept me afloat. And I would say that's the difference between my successful teams and my struggling teams is because I have the pitching depth to absorb injuries here, where another one's – yeah, the, the rules are different, so you can't. No, that's that's a really good point to make. I was going to ask, are there other things about your less successful teams that stand out as being common things that you're going to keep in mind when you start drafting again for next year? Yeah, a couple of things. I mean, I, I, you really can't plan for it, but I've, like everybody, I've had a high volume of injuries. I have one of my teams where I've lost, where I've lost Jesus Lazardo, Eduardo Rodriguez, Brandon Woodruff and Walker Buehler. I lost all four of those guys. And it's like, it's going to be impossible to try to rebound 
when four of your six starters are gone like that. Uh, and you know, who knows when they may come back uh, with that. So that's the high volume of injuries has just been really tough this year. And then some some players I like going into the season that I did not diversify my profile of, and I'm paying for that. I, I, I have multiple shares of Corey Knable, and that has not worked out as well as I expected it to uh, in Philadelphia. And the, the risk reward of Tyler O'Neill and Bobby Dalbeck, players I have in multiple leagues. I've had more risk than reward from both of those guys. Um, and then somebody like Lucas Giolito, uh, you know, he's killing me in AL tout, another terrible outing yesterday. Um, I have him in multiple leagues. I really liked him coming into the season because I really liked the White Sox coming into the season. Then the injuries came in, then Tony La Russa did what he does, and that team is underperforming, and so is Lucas Giolito. And so it's like players that I have on multiple teams because I really liked them. And I said, okay. And it wasn't like I was reaching for O'Neill. I mean, I, I was taking him right where the market was. I liked him. Uh, Dahlbeck, I liked a little more than the market, but I have him on multiple teams. And so I need, you know, Dahlbeck to get hot this summer uh, to have a rebound, but yeah, I don't know about Giolito. So I would say lesson learned is diversify your portfolio a little bit more on some of these riskier profiles uh, and then add some more pitching depth. I can't remember who it was, Jason, but I talked to somebody on Baseball HQ Radio here within the last year or two, and we were talking about uh, diversification as a way to avoid risk. And it wasn't Ariel Cohen I was talking to, by the way, uh, because uh, I would have remembered that. But we were talking about the idea, if you're running a lot of teams, is it good policy to have a lot of the same players across all your rosters because you really believe in them? Or is a spread the risk kind of approach, not only applicable within a particular draft, but across your draft so that, you know, the upside is you may have Bobby Dahlbeck only on two rosters rather than seven or whatever, but the downside is your correct assessment of Jazz Chisholm, you wouldn't have had him on as many rosters as you do and would have lost out on that. How do you think about the idea of spreading your risk or through diversification across leagues rather than just within leagues? I would say like moving forward, I may look at it as you can only take so many, you can only have the same player on foundational players on so many teams. So yes, it's worked out. My, my two best teams, Ramirez and Jazz Chisholm are on both of those. That's been great. But if one of them flops, especially Ramirez, both of those teams are going to be in trouble. So perhaps if I'm going to get multiple shares of different players, spread that risk around the roster. So like I mentioned earlier, I have Luis Arias in five of my 10 leagues. Um, he was somebody that I was absolutely targeting because I knew that, okay, if I, if I want to take on a Bobby Dahlbeck and I want to take on a Tyler O'Neill, that's going to be batting average risk. I need to find ways late in the game that I can make up that batting average risk. So guys like Jimenez, guys like Arias, I had those guys I was looking at later, and Arias was just sitting out there. Nobody wanted him. Uh, you know, he's been a guy who's made a lot of me look at that Minnesota roster. Like, who can hit leadoff for that team? And he made the absolute most sense because he's the one guy that gets on base a bunch. Um, now, I know they've done Bucks, uh, Buxton up there, but you can't count on Buxton being in the lineup. So Arias was somebody early on that said, I want this guy anywhere I can get him. Uh, and so I didn't mind taking that risk because it's a low, the, the market price was low on him. Uh, and if I diversify, and he's replaceable as the late round game. But if you make too many of those plays early on where I want to have the same foundation of the team uh, and then diversify the, the role players, then you're, you're adding a lot of risk across the board because if they all flop, then your entire portfolio flops. 
Yeah, especially at the top of the draft, as you said, uh, Jose Ramirez. I mean, it was pretty unlikely that he's going to tank. He's been, geez, one of the most consistent players in the last 10 years, probably. But he could get hurt, and that would be a, a real loss for as many teams as, as you had him on. I think you're correct, though, in saying that down when you get into those like 35th, 40th, 45th draft picks, if you believe in a guy like Arise and there was some reason to believe in him, as you said, I don't think the risk is that bad because the cost is so low, as you mentioned. So something to think about for next uh, next winter. It is. It's something to think about. Of course, it only applies if you're looking uh, to play, you know, sort of 10 plus leagues, I'd say anything short of that, maybe it's not as uh, urgent of something to think about. I have Shane Boz on my team in our Tout American League league that we both play in. And my usual philosophy in that league and other relatively deep leagues, when I get my top starters like Shane Boz, is I just run them out there every week. I don't care who they're playing against. I just believe in them. Hasn't worked so great with Jose Barrios this year, but whatever. This week I benched Boz because he was up against the Yankees. So knowing what we know about the Yankees and how potent that offense is, what's your take on pitcher management and streaming, even with top pitchers where the Yankees are the opposition? Yeah, and, and so I'll start with the with the Boz situation in particular because it's certainly a defensible move. I mean, it was only Boz's second start back from injury, and he had been out for two months uh, so the the chance of him going deep enough into the game to qualify for a decision uh, was reduced right out of the gate. Uh, and so then you look at that and then you look at the matchup and, and what the Yankees are, are capable of doing on any given day. And it, again, I don't blame you. I would have done the same thing. I have done the same thing. I benched Michael Kopech against the Yankees at one point this season. Um, so I've looked at it and said, you know what? This isn't worth the squeeze. I'm not going to try to do this. Um, so I, I understand the move um, with that, uh, again, with, with the extra factor. But sometimes in a single league format, it's really tough to do that because you, you need the innings, you need the starts, you need the, you need to continue to grow the, the strikeouts and, uh, and whatnot. So uh, with Boz, I understand, but it's certainly a tough decision because I've looked at some of these every week and I'm like, uh, I, was, I was thinking I, this week when they were trying to line up the rotation, if Jeffrey Springs would have pitched against uh, the Yankees, I would have benched him. Uh, and but he's pitching against the Pirates, which is a much better matchup. So he's in my lineup. But at first, they were like, "Oh, he's going to pitch against the Yankees." I'm like, yikes, no thanks. Um, and I was going to bench him this week. And I mean, I'm not comparing Springs to Boz, but it's like Springs has been a really good pitcher um, here over the last uh, six weeks uh, since he's been in the rotation full time. And um, it's just something to consider. So that raises the question, Jason. I guess we're agreed that under the correct circumstance, you're going to sit even a good pitcher against the Yankees rather than somebody we would normally consider just a streamer. But I wonder how high up do you have to get before you know you would start a guy against the Yankees? And I'm just looking this week that they're they're playing Houston. So you've got uh, the projected starters, fall, uh, Valdez Thursday, Verlander Friday, uh, Urquidy not so much, but... Verlander and Valdez uh, in particular seem like the kind of pitchers that you do want to have in there a lot, uh, especially Valdez with all those ground balls. But how high up the pecking order of starting pitchers would you go before a starter is still a must-start against all opposition, even the Yankees? I think you know the examples he gave right there are great ones. Uh, you know, I would never never bench a Verlander, and but particularly Valdez, as you said, with the ground ball. I mean, that's the type of pitcher when it gets down to certain pitchers, it comes down to 
skill profile. It's like with, with Valdez, yeah, it's, it's a different tier, but the, the ability of him to keep the ball on the ground as much as he does certainly limits the damage that the Yankees can do to a team uh, with, with the way their offense is played out. But, I mean, the thing with them is just it wears – I mean, their lineup is, is thick one to nine. I mean, even the Jose Trevino, the guy the Rangers were like, here, take, has been a godsend for that club. Uh, and it's just one to nine deep, and it just wears you out at, at the end of the day. And what's what's different about them this year is they're not killing themselves. They haven't had the big injuries that they've always had. Their bullpen has been amazing, even with Chapman just being a non-factor for most of the year. But their bullpen has been amazing, and they're not making the self-inflicted wounds that they have. I mean, they they went out and upgraded the the defense uh, with uh, Isaiah Connor Falefa. Uh, and then adding Jose Trevino behind the plate and getting rid of Gary Sanchez. Uh, and so their, their defense has improved. You watch a play. There's a reason why they have the best record in baseball. It's not luck. It's not anything else. They have certainly earned it with the way they put that team together. Uh, you know, as a, as a Yankee hating fan, it pisses me off, but you know, kudos to them. You couldn't keep that club down forever. Uh, and they're rolling in it this year. And uh and it's good. I mean, when you make good decisions, good things happen. But I would say, uh, you know, for the most part, I, it's not an automatic when I look at the starting pitchers like, oh, hey, they're playing the Yankees. It, again, there's you, you got to think about it because they will they can knock your pitcher out early in the game or and then some reliever comes in and just adds uh, fuel to the fire. And all of a sudden you, and they come in with two guys on base, both those guys score and. Then you have, and I think that's what happened with Boz the other day. He got pulled out, and the first pitch after he left was a two-run single by uh, LeMahieu, and those two runs went to the starting pitcher. Man, boy, don't get me started on that. I actually had a commentary here a couple of weeks ago about pitchers who are really getting uh, lambasted by their relief core not stepping up on inherited runners and letting a lot of them score. And the league average is 35%, I think, something like that, who do score. So two-thirds of inherited runners don't. But there are some pitchers for whom the the uh, inherited runner scoring numbers are in the 70%. So whatever kind of uh, you know combustible material they leave on board – the reliever comes in and tosses a match on top of it to boot, you know, and, and I think when you're assessing your pitchers, especially for drop ad purposes, I think it behooves you to look at it and say, how much of this ERA is actually guys that didn't score because directly because of this guy allowing hits? Because uh, I think you should expect it to be more or less normal for the team, not for the league. If the bullpen as a whole on some, you know, poorer team lets in 50% of their runners, then you got to expect that they're going to, they're going to allow 50% of that guy's runners to score. But if it's a case where it's 25% for everybody else and 60% for your guy, then all of a sudden you have to think, well, maybe I've got to really be sure about dropping this guy because I have to expect that at some point his relievers are going to come through for him the way they do for just the other guys on that team. Yeah, sometimes that stuff normalizes out. Sometimes it doesn't. I would say on like on the flip side of that, look at run support because you you often think there was a point at this season, I think I wrote about it a month ago, like with the Yankees. We just talked about their offense and all this. You looked at like they, they average, you know, I think at the time they were averaging 5.8 runs a game. And then you look at, you're like, how does Nestor Cortez have one win? 
How does Jordan Montgomery have no wins? And then you look at the run support when those two guys were in the game and they had two of the worst run support in baseball at the time. They were both in the in the bottom 20 for run support and they were they were pitching their asses off and they could not get run support. <laughs> and now Jordan Montgomery's had some decisions because the Yankees are getting out. And so that stuff kind of normalizes out. But it's like one of those things where I like looking at that and, and you know, you got to look at the numbers within the numbers. So it's like you can't just say, oh, he's on a great team that scores a lot of runs. He'll get decisions. But what if he doesn't? And particularly Jordan Montgomery, because this has been a thing for two and a half years. You go back and look at his numbers. Last time I checked, he leads all of baseball in no decisions since 2020. And it's and he's pitched well. And this year he's really pitching well um, outside of you know, he had some struggles last night. But surprised Yankees came back and won. And that gets us into looking at manager behavior and how quick are the hooks for various teams. A lot of them are very light on the trigger, shall we say. They'll they'll pull a guy at the first sign of problems, and, and that's something you have to be aware of, especially on a week-to-week streaming basis. Again, not so much maybe with your aces, but even with really good pitchers, if their managers are very touchy about getting out there and getting them off because they have good bullpen support and all of that kind of thing. I can't tell you how many starts I've had that have been four and two-thirds innings this year it's just and it's so frustrating to watch but that's how the team does it and you got to be aware of that hey i'm looking at the list of uh, fan graphs starting pitchers by wins above replacement and i just want to run through a few of them and ask you would you start this pitcher against the yankees uh, in your next opportunity uh, how about kevin gosman of toronto he's leading uh, the league actually both leagues in war 3.3 uh yes i would how about uh, Sandy Alcantara of Miami? Yes, I would. Uh, Zach Wheeler? Yes, I would. Okay, here's the first one that may be a bit of a question. Carlos Rodon? Yes, I would. Martin Perez, Martin Perez, I guess, of Texas? No, I would not. Okay. Max Fried? Yes, I would. Musgrove? Yes, I would. Aaron Nola? That gives me pause because <laughs> of the whole that one. That one gives me pause. Plus, plus his third time through the order penalty is really, really bad, uh, and I, I still haven't got a feel on how Rob Thompson uh, is managing that. Uh, so, no, on Nova. Okay, how about uh, Tariq Skubal? Uh, after last night's outing uh, against Boston, I'm going to go with a no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, just a couple more. How about Corbin Burns? Yes. Uh, Dylan Cease. No. Alec Manoa. Yes. And finally, Shane McClanahan. Yes. Because Shane McClanahan's already faced them two or three times. Both times he's got up against Garrett Cole, and it's been no decision city for both of them, which has been really annoying. Uh, so McClanahan has been pitching. You know, it's a shame. He should be in the Cy Young contention this year. He's pitched that well. Uh, the The overall record may not show it, and you know the team's only five games above 500, but Shane McClanahan has been awesome this year. Absolutely awesome. The only guy on page one of the uh, war list for starting pitchers ahead of Shane McClanahan on strikeouts per nine is Dylan Cease, and it's pretty close, actually. I think 12 and some for Shane McClanahan and just over 13 for Dylan Cease. <laughs> Yeah, I think Cease moved ahead of McClanahan uh, after the outing earlier this week with Doug Eddings behind the plate where the strike zone was uh, apparently Eric Gregg tribute night where it was about 50 feet wide. And uh, the the, um, the umpire scorecard for that game was 
absolutely atrocious. Doug Eddings missed like 30 pitches. Uh, and Dylan Cease is like, oh, you're going to call that pitch four inches off the plate for a strike? I, I'll just keep throwing it out there. I'll do that. So I like yeah. those uh, umpire scorecards because they rate the umpire for actual calls versus the actual strike zone. And then they also have a consistency score where did he call the same pitch mm-hmm. in the same location the same way. And uh, both of those scores, I think 90% is about as good as they ever get, 90 92%. And to me, that's just a, a ringing argument for uh, robo-umps. I don't know about you. Yeah, I, I mean, baseball could go a long way, and that's the frustrating part about all this is the only transparency we have into umpire performance is – a couple of college kids that have written the umpire scorecard thing to give us this. So as fans, this is what we have, but we have no accountability. Like when an umpire goes out and influences the game that much, I, I think the umpire scorecard said Doug Eddings influenced the White Sox by 2.03 runs. Yeah, It's like when somebody does that, that should be suspension worthy because yeah. that is, in, that's the, you know, it's hitting the, the, the quality of the game and that, you know, Doug Eddings should have to come out and go back to like, think about it. Like if you commit a driving offense, you'd have to go to driver's school to get the points off your license. You should have something like that. Where like, if you have that much of a violation in a game, something should happen and we should know about it. It's like, okay, Hey, Doug Eddings is coming out of rotation. He's going back to the Harry Wendelstadt umpire school in Cocoa beach, Florida. He's going to go get retrained for a week and we'll bring him back. But that's the frustrating part. And it's, it's bad. I mean, even if you're watching the college world series, you're seeing this in the college world series as well. And yeah, robo wumps are coming sooner rather than later. And it's almost, some of these performances have been so bad this year. It's almost like they're under marching orders. Hey, please suck. So it's really, it's, it's easier for us to bring the, uh, the robo wumps in. Cause I saw it. I was in Fort Myers this past weekend and I went to a, a Fort Myers mighty muscles game against the Bradenton Marauders. And they have, uh, they had the, the challenge system uh, in play where the batter, could like tap his helmet and ask for a replay on a ball and strike. And the umpire would stand up, turn around. And then wait. it took about three seconds. And they would say, call is confirmed to strike or call is overturned. It's a ball. It, I mean, it was so quick. Um, and I loved it. I was like, if that's the way it's going to be in a major leagues, that would be fantastic. Just be able to turn around and say, no, I want it reviewed. And it was five, you know, three to five seconds for review. And I loved it. And it was just really easy uh, in the in the flow of the minor league game. And so, you know, let's see if we get to the major leagues. It's been really tough to watch this year. Well, from my point of view, if you have to turn around and ask the guy, then why not just skip that whole stage of having the guy make a show of calling a ball or a strike and the other guy, the batter being able to say, or the catcher, I presume, can call for a, a strike on a ball call. Let's just eliminate that and have the machine call it in the first place and move on like they do in tennis now with the line calls. Yeah, I think in, I think in the Atlantic League, they are doing what you just what you just outlined. Uh, but in the in the Florida State League, I think they're calling that again, obviously, and Florida State League was that. But I believe in the Atlantic League, it's more like what you said. And I think that's going to be the way it's going to go. And I'll tell you why. Something you said just a minute ago made me think the impetus for changing from um, human home plate umpires calling balls and strikes to machines is gambling. When you have a guy who's ha- making a, uh, a two run swing in the, in the neutral uh, uh, outcome of the game that, that you mentioned just a moment mm-hmm. ago about Eddings, two runs. I mean, most gambling lines are way smaller than two runs, which means the, not that the umpires are going to cheat or you're not going to have a Tim Hannity or whatever his name was in the NBA, that whole story. I'm not saying that that's going to happen, but how does it look 
if you get a situation where a critical call turns a game and there's all kinds of gamblers out there legally putting money on the game, legally putting money during the game, and all of a sudden all these bets lose, how many of those losing bettors are going to turn around and go, this thing was fixed, that guy was betting on the game somehow? It just looks terrible. Absolutely fair point. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Jason Collette from Rotowire and the Sleeper in the Bust pod. And uh, Jason, in your regular Collette Calls column at Rotowire, you wrote about the need for speed, which we all know about, I guess. To begin with, what have you noticed about stolen base trends this season? Uh, good news is they're up uh, and it and, and looks like they're here to stay, which is what, I mean, as somebody who grew up in the eighties watching Vince Coleman and Willie McGee and Ricky Henderson, you know, it's, it's, we're never going to be back there, but at least we're running again. Uh, and so I think early on it was out of necessity because the mush ball just wasn't going anywhere and teams were looking for ways to generate offense. The so stolen bases went up and in the article, I have the line showing the trend in the, in each scoring period. So we're looking at, we're comparing apples to apples and every week, of the 2022 season, we've had more steals than we had in 2021. We've never had fewer. There's been two where we've had the exact same totals, but it's always been as many or more than this time last year. So we're running more as a league um, with that. And that's nice to see uh, because, again, it, baseball and, and our friend Joe Sheehan's written much about it in his newsletter about how uh, baseball is becoming too stationary. Uh, and not enough movement. So it's nice to see these teams running uh, again. And so I'm hoping this sticks around because the the mush baseball is not as mushy these days. Uh, you know, it seems to be there's been a few articles written about it. I even wrote one a couple of weeks ago um, where the baseball seems to have gone through yet another change uh, about five weeks ago. But I was fearful that we would have the steals would decline as teams were like, oh, the ball's flying around again. I guess we'll stop running. Uh, but they really haven't. I mean, they did peak back in week six where we had 151 steals league-wide. Um, but that could also could have been makeup games or doubleheaders and whatnot. So we haven't had another peak week. But again, every every scoring period this year has been better than this time last year. You also commented on the who of the increased steals, or maybe it's the who not, but there are lots of new faces on the leaderboard for stolen base attempts in the last 30 days. Yeah, there are. So I looked at, I brought up last year's stolen base leaders and said, okay, here are the guys that led the league in steals and how many attempts have they had this year? Uh, you know, certain guys are running, like Cedric Mullins stole 30 last year, and he had, he had nine attempts over the 30, in the 30 days prior to when I wrote that article. You know, Jose Ramirez, uh, had 27 steals uh, in 21, and he had 10 attempts in his last 30 days. So that's awesome. But, uh, you know, Starling Marte led all of baseball with 47 steals. He's had four attempts in the last 30 days. Whit Merrifield had 40 steals. He's had three attempts. Paul Bichette had 25 steals. He's attempted one stolen base. In fact, he actually, I take that back, he attempted two. And it was that, that ill-advised attempted steal of third base where he got thrown out the other night. Right. You know, that all happened. But this year... We have new faces like John Birdie is obviously the story right now because the guy is just every time he gets on base, he's running. He's 17 of his last 17 uh, in stolen bases. He was picked off. And I don't know if you consider, you know, getting picked off a caught stealing because he got picked off at first base. Uh, but he has 17 uh, of his last 17 stolen base attempts uh, with that. And, you know, Harrison Bader, the Cardinals are running more. Christopher Morrell has been there. Julio Rodriguez obviously is making a lot of noise with his 
uh, with his running. So it, it's been nice to see some new things. I was I, I was rather encouraged to see the Cardinals moving as much as they are because that's a brand new manager with Oliver Marmol in place. You know, a young guy. Um, analytically driven. We had no track record of what he was going to do, but he has put Tommy Edmond and Harrison Bader in motion quite a bit, and it's been nice. But only them so far. I guess you could also say Tyler O'Neill, when he was in there, was getting some stolen base tries. Not particularly successful. I think that's an interesting point you make, though, about Marmol, because the the pitch on him when we were first hearing about him was he was really into analytics. And for many years, the people were arguing that it was analytics said it was a bad idea to steal. And I I never thought it was. I think if you've got a guy who steals bases at an 80 or 85% clip, you should send him every time you can, because he's obviously raising the expected run matrix in your team's favor. If he's getting to second 80% of the time on a single basically. And I think this is really instructive and really promising for the future. Even if the ball gets a little jumpier, I think there are going to be new young managers analytically driven who are seeing, going to be able to say, I think I can improve my team's run expectancy by letting guys who can steal bases steal bases. Uh, indeed. Uh, and, and sometimes it comes down to the situations. Like you don't want to leave that base open. Especially if you got a good hitter at the plate and a guy steals seconds, like, all right, fine, I'm going to pitch around that hitter and just deal with the next guy. So sometimes some of those guys get anchored on first because of who's at the plate. Uh, and they don't want to the they don't want to give the opposition the ability to pitch around that particular hitter. But for the most part, I mean the the league, it, yeah, the stolen base tolls are up, but they're still not running at frequencies that we've seen even in the past you know, 10 years. Uh, it's, it's, but it's making a, a way up because stolen bases have been on decline for the most part um, here over the past uh, seven, eight years as the ball got livelier, people just stopped running. Um, and so if this is the new reality, if this is the new, uh, the marketplace, I'm all in. I love this. I love stolen bases. They're, they're fun. It's a nice part of the game. Uh, and it's nice that we're, we're seeing more stolen bases uh, in, in, our, in our fantasy standings. Interestingly, too, uh, I've talked about this on the show before, but when Theo Epstein was on Bill Simmons' podcast, he made a point of saying that they've surveyed the fans extensively, and one of the three things that fans want to see a lot of in games is stolen bases. They're exciting. Like, it's a, it's a moment of drama and, and explosive athleticism, and that's what they want to see, and, and sure enough, they're all seeing it. Also, I notice when I look at the list of guys who are leading the league in steals, and this should be seem like it's self-evident, but man, these stolen base success rates are really high. Like uh, Bertie, you mentioned 95% success rate. He's 19 out of 20. Why -hmm. wouldn't you send that guy every single chance you get? It doesn't make sense not to. All the rest of the guys up until Rosarena's tied for seventh or eighth with 12 stolen bases, he's down around 71% success. And you can see somebody finally maybe putting the red light on him. But after that, you have to get all the way down into the high 20s. Uh, Dylan Moore at 75%. Everybody else, 88, 89, 90, 86 I think that maybe the part of the story, and I know you touched on this, is that teams are not as good at throwing out stolen base guys as they used to be. Yeah, and it, I mean, it comes down to a couple of factors. Like I tweeted about this the other night. I mean, there are sometimes, and it really helps in, in daily fantasy uh, matchups. Like who's on the? There's certain things because when you when we think about controlling the running game, often the blame gets put on the catcher, but it's not. It's not all the catcher. I don't care how good your throwing arm is. Uh, if your pitcher is slow to the plate, you've got you've got little to no chance in controlling that. So the other night, 
in Kansas City. Uh, the Kansas City Royals were playing the, uh, I'm still calling them Anaheim, Anaheim Angels. And there was Noah Syndergaard on the mound, uh, and it was Kurt Suzuki behind the plate. Noah Syndergaard, coming into that game, had not uh, had opposing stolen base um, attempts. Every single one of them had been successful on the season. Every single one. Uh, with him on the mound. Now, Kurt Suzuki, uh, because Baseball Savant just updated the catcher pop times on their leaderboards, they had not published time since 2019. They now have them. Kurt Suzuki had the second worst pop time. So you look at that, you're like, okay, the, you know, you've got a pitcher who does not, who is slow to the plate, everybody runs on him, and you got a catcher with a noodle arm. It's like, this is the game. This is the game's going to run. Sure enough, Andrew Benintendi had his first steal of the season, and he had had plenty of opportunities. He had not even attempted a steal, but a matchup that juicy, even Mike Matheny is like, okay, kid, you you stunk last year. You were eight for 17 stealing bases, but you can go ahead and run tonight. And if you don't do it, you're never running again. Sure enough, he got his first steal. Um, so it's like things like that when you look at matchups or like at the Phillies the other day, I was watching – uh, maybe it was a game, maybe the Marlins were playing the Phillies and Birdie was back there, but Garrett Stubbs was behind the plate. And anytime that JT Real Mito is not catching for the Phillies, you run on the Phillies because Real Mito's got the strongest arm, but Garrett Stubbs does not. And so it's like you take your chances uh, where that, um, and then if you get a slow pitcher, you know, more the merrier. So it really all comes down to, to looking at those opportunities. And I, as I said earlier, that it really helps in daily fantasy, but that can apply to your lineup too, because you can see you pretty much know when that starting pitcher is going to be. And so if you can find one of those starting pitchers and then it lines up against like a, a third game of a series where you know the second catcher is going to play or if it's a day game after a night game and the backup catcher is going to play, I mean, try to look for those kind of things and say, okay, I am, I'm going to I'm gonna go this route. But, you know, I, I regret not doing daily fantasy that night because when I saw that matchup, I had a tweet. I'm like, this could be a track meet. I think the Royals had four stolen bases, but they actually – um, they did throw somebody out. They were four or five. So somebody did get thrown out. I'm sure it's a kangaroo court fine uh, being thrown out by that battery. Uh, so it's just one of those things to look at. Yeah. Maybe they sent their own catcher just to see what would happen. Uh, <laughs> so far this season, you said in the column, Jason, 225 players at time of writing had at least one stolen bases and taken together, they ran about 8% of their opportunities. Before we get into that, where do you get the number of stolen base opportunities? It's not something that's easily seen. Yeah, so it's it's buried in baseball reference. So if you go into baseball reference uh, and look for the base running miscellaneous report under the under the league summary, uh, there's a report there and it breaks it out and it says SB SB opportunities uh, and stolen base opportunities are defined as the player being on base with the next base unoccupied. So you're on first or second and second or third are unoccupied. It does not take into account you hit a triple on home plates unoccupied uh, because that just doesn't happen that often. Uh, so that's what stolen base opportunities are. So I'll pull that report. And then the report also shows second, it breaks down second base and third base. So you can see those types of things. Um, but I like taking a look at, okay, who is, if the league is running, if attempting steals 8% of the time when they're on base, the, the folks who are running, because there are some guys like you joked about, uh, Kansas City senior catcher Sal Perez may attempt one stolen base in a decade, right? So he's not running. I don't care how often he doesn't run because he just doesn't run. I'm looking at the guys who run. So if the league's running 8% of the time, who are some of those players that are running a lot more than that? And it's like before he got hurt, Eli White was leading baseball. Eli White was attempting steals 42% of the time when he had an opportunity. 
Um, I had Eli White. I still have him. He's on my IL now. But in AL, in AL labor, I have Eli White. And he's been a godsend on cheap steals because he's been running every time he's been on base. Um, even Birdie, you mentioned about him being 19 and 20. He's still only attempting stolen bases 36% of the time when he has opportunities. Um, I was watching the game the other day, and he was on first base with two outs, and they didn't send him. Uh, and it was uh, a, a Julius Chachin came in and pitched to, I think it was Garrett Cooper. There were a couple of sliders low and away. These would have been perfect pitches for him to run on. Um, and he didn't run. I was just like, come on, man. I, like I tuned into your game to watch you steal a base. Uh, and he stayed on first base. Um, they did throw over four times to keep him close. Uh, but yeah, it's one of those things. So we have uh, multiple guys that are out there running more often uh, quite often uh, compared to the league average. And it's just one of those, I try to look for some of those guys and say, okay, who can I find here? Like you mentioned Dylan Moore earlier, Dylan Moore certainly has a risk profile, but when he's on base, he runs 30% of the 30% of the times when he has a stolen base opportunity, he's running. Um, and so if I'm in a, a AL only league and I'm looking for cheap steals, I'll take the risk on that. And it makes me think, I looked at that same set of percentages too. Uh, uh, there was one other guy, I think Jorge Mateo was around 30% as well, going in his opportunities Indeed. and as was pretty near the top of the pile. And Dylan Moore, although he has relatively few steals compared to the top guys, was up around 40% as well. But I think that there's an opportunity if somebody were to download that um, set of information, paste it into an Excel sheet, and then look at the the percentages, there's some room for growth in some of these guys. Tommy Edmonds got, what, 16 bags. He's only running 14% of the time, and he's doing really well at stealing bases. He's at 85%. I can't help but think that sooner or later, sooner rather than later, that the Cardinals are going to look at this Tommy Edmonds situation, and Bader too, he's only at 21%, and say, we got to send these guys practically every time they're on base. Yeah, it would be nice to see some of that. Or, you know, conversely, then you can look at some of the people who are, uh, who have a lot of opportunity, but you meant you were referring to it earlier about the stolen base success rate. Uh, I, I joked about Benintendi. Benintendi had a lot of opportunities last year. He was eight for 17 uh, in his attempts. And so this year, again, that stolen base he had uh, uh, Tuesday night was his first attempt of the season. I had jokingly tweeted out earlier that day. If anybody had a picture of an actual anchor tied to Benintendi's ankle, because he had not, I mean, he had 135 opportunities and had not even attempted a single stolen base. And this is Mike Matheny we're talking about. Matheny has, you know, it, you know, he has eschewed some of these things in the past, but like, you know what, I'm just going to whatever. But, uh, you know, he had not even allowed Benintendi to attempt a single stolen base uh, with that. So it's like if some of these guys that are running into outs, they could lose some of these things. So even if they do have a lot of these opportunities, they may not even attempt them. They're going to be said, you know what, we're going to peel you back. You mentioned Rosarena. He's certainly gotten better over the last couple of weeks, but at one point, and he may still lead the leagues in outs on the bases, um, you know, trying to take the extra base, getting thrown out, uh, over sliding the bag. But at one point he was like running away with leading the league with outs on the bases. Yeah. And those kind of guys, you have to be worried about the red light, as I said, but man, when I look down this list, there's a lot of guys who are like, there's several fairly good base dealers, Christian Yelich and Whit Merrifield, you mentioned Merrifield, they're under 10% go rate, I call it. And Man, it just seems like there's there's opportunity there at least, and that fantasy managers should be looking at a list like this and say, hmm, you know, if this guy were to bump his uh, his go rate from ten percent to fifteen percent, all of a sudden I'm looking at maybe uh, you know an extra twelve bags or something like that. Uh, I think it's certainly possible. But you lay out in your column uh, when you're looking at guys with twenty percent or higher run rates that 
even though there are guys on the list that seem to be rosterable, their rosterability should be held into question. What are the red flags that keep guys like them from being must-ads as far as stolen bases go? I mean, for me, it, it, it's a matter of their success rate because, again, the league is stealing bases at about a 76% clip. Uh, and so, you know, you I forgot who you mentioned. Maybe it was a Rosarena recent 72% earlier. But if you see somebody below uh, at that number, the manager is going to start thinking about it. And then below that, eventually it's going to peel up and they're going to lose their opportunities. So they have to be, they have to be successful 75% of the time. And maybe with some of these non-contending teams, it's like, whatever, like you met with Jorge Mateo in Baltimore, they're not going anywhere. They can you know let them run as much as he wants to run. If you get, if he starts getting thrown out with some of these other contending teams, like you mentioned the Cardinals, um, let's say Bader or Edmund uh, are having some issues. Maybe they maybe they don't run because that team's you know, trying to contend for a for a division title. So it all comes into play there. But if the you just got to look at that threshold and you see somebody that's down there um, below closer to seventy percent and definitely below that, it, it should give you great pause about them continuing to run the rest of the season uh, if they're just going to give away outs like that. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Jason Collette from Rotowire and the Sleeper in the Bus podcast. And Jason, also in Collette Calls at Rotowire, you had an in-depth analysis, this was a week or two ago, about slugging in the early going. Uh, first, describe what you saw in the hitting stats that made you uh, think about writing this column. So, you know, we hit hit on it a little earlier, but looking at how the baseball, uh, the mush ball was, was dying um, over the uh, the first five weeks of the season, particularly week three, it really caved. But then uh, Ballpark Pal on Twitter uh, put some numbers out and really got my attention because you could see about week seven how there's been a spike in the ho- in the expected home runs and the moving average and uh, compared to the early part of the season. So I just went to go look at that. Uh, and that number earlier, we, we talked about steals where every week, every scoring period this week has been better than last year at the same time. Well, it wasn't until last week that the home run by contact measure was better in 2022 than it had been in 2020 in 2021. So it's like we're just now starting to see the ball kind of catch up. And it, you, could, you know, it's not just, oh, hey, it's summer. It's hot. It's been hot for a while. Uh, and, you know, these kind of, th- kind of things happen. But we're starting to see an up, uptick in, the, in offense finally starting to show up. And some of that is, you know, we're seeing fewer strikeouts in the league as well. Uh, so we're seeing more balls put in play uh, now, and the ball is starting to perform more normal now. I, I would still say opposite field home runs are on the decline unless you're playing in Yankee Stadium. Uh, but for the most part, oppo, oppo home runs uh, are not happening as frequently as they did last year. And, you know, Sarah's had a really good article about that about three weeks ago um, that you should find on The Athletic. The obvious factor in the increase seems to be the ball. That's what everybody seems to assume anyways. But are there others that you think might be coming into play? Um, some of it I could could be some of the abnormal uh, abnormal of the, you know, the start stop of spring training. It's like, okay, hey, let's get ready for the season. Nope, we're not going to have a season. Uh, you know, how all of that, everything went down. Some guys had to ramp up. Uh, I think that's also a factor. The the baseball, the inconsistency of of the baseball itself, and how they're conditioning the baseball. There was a story that came out just a couple of days ago that you know, hey, we now have uh, these are the consistent policies on how the baseball must be treated uh, leading up to the day of the game, leading in the hours leading up to the game, uh, and it's kind of crazy that the this this consistent policy is being applied at the end of June. Why wasn't it applied three months ago? 
So we're, we have 30 different stadiums. Yes, the, the Humidor uh, was definitely in play in all 30 parks for the first time. It was only in 10 of 30 previously. So we have 30 of 30. But even then, there was all these variables coming into play. When they were applying the Delaware mud and, and how those balls were being stored. like So they had to, they had put all these extra things into play because the players and Michael Lorenzen was the most vocal lately. It was like... These balls are crap. You know, we got to get, you know, I go to one ballpark, it's one way. I go to another ballpark, it's another way. So we've got to get some consistency. And baseball really needs to get their hands around this and, and get more control of this this winter. Uh, you know, a lot of people said, go look at what Japan does. Use the ball that Japan League does because nobody complains about it as much as the people complain about the baseballs here in the U.S. And this has been a story now for three years. Uh, they've got to get, they've got to get a handle on this. Yeah, it could be that, you know, people in Japan, their culture is not one of complaining about stuff like that, especially publicly. So there could be that. Uh, I think the thing about the Japanese baseball that people like was the grippability of it. it. They use some kind of different leather or some kind of differently treated leather. So it's it's a bit tackier, kind of like a new football is when you get That's it. Right. And you don't have to apply anything to make it stickier that the leather itself is sticky, which gives the pitchers a little bit more grip on it. Having said that, maybe that's not something everybody wants because if their spin rates go up, then the strikeouts go up and you're back where you started. That's true. But then again, you see some of the action that you know, Rod Friedman puts on Twitter about some of the – like Clay Holmes last night, his sinker. It almost looks like a screwball. It is moving so much and fading away from lefties. It almost looks like a screwball, even though he's not pronating his arm. Uh, but yeah, that's why I love watching Pitch and Ninja on Twitter because it's like it's impossible to hit. I have, honestly have no idea how any of these guys hit. I really don't. I agree with you when they show, especially when they put the tail on it, they call it the tail, that kind of neon arrow that shows yes. how, how much the ball is moving. Or you just go to a baseball savant and you look at the movement numbers and you say 15 inches of downward break and 15 inches of horizontal break at the same time. <laughs> how does anybody hit this? Or even more. Some of those numbers wow. are even larger. It's, it's truly amazing. Uh, Jason, super interesting so far. Let's take a break. We'll do our National American League news with Nick and Ray, and then we'll come back and finish our discussion. Yeah. Jason Klett writes for Rotowire and podcasts on The Sleeper and the Bust. He'll be back a little later in the show, but coming up, we have our Market Watch Player News reports. Nick has the National League news. Ray has the American League news next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, it's time for me to let you know about an item of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Facts and Flukes Spotlight, analyst Brant Chesser dives deep into Detroit left-hander Tariq Skubal. And by the way, earlier this week, I had a Facts and Flukes Spotlight on Toronto right-hander Jose Barrios. All part of the great content you'll find all the time at BaseballHQ.com. I was asking you, sir, uh... <clears throat> Why it is that baseball wants this bill passed? I would say I wouldn't know, but I would say the reason why they'd want it passed is to keep baseball going as the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball and from the baseball angle. I'm not going to speak of any other sport. I'm not in here to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. It's been run cleaner than any baseball business that was ever put out in the hundred years at the present time. Well, Mr. Vandal, do you uh, have any observations with reference to uh, the applicability of the antitrust laws to baseball? Well, my, my views are just about the same as Casey's. <laughs> baseball HQ Radio. <laughs> 
And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch Player News Reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League Report. And leading off, it's our National League News and our old friend Baseball HQ Pitcher Matchups Analyst Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Patrick. Always good to be here. Let's start in San Francisco. The Giants placed outfielder Luis Gonzalez on the IL on Thursday of this week. He has a low back strain. They backdated the the IL stint to June 22nd, which is midweek this week. Uh, they also made a trade. They acquired Willie Calhoun from Texas for outfielder Stephen Duggar, who's on the IL with an oblique issue, although I think I read that Duggar's been activated by Texas. So what's the upshot of all this goings-on in the San Francisco outfield? Well, Calhoun hit just 136 with a homer, seven runs, two RBIs over 18 games with the Rangers to start the year, and uh, did have more walks and strikeouts. And then he complained about lack of playing time, demanded a trade, uh, and instead of doing that, at the time, Texas outrighted him to AAA, where he's uh, at 217, 264, 410 slash line, five home runs, 20 RBIs, 18 runs over 21 games, and now will attempt to carve out a role in the Giants organization. Um, it won't be too easy. Uh, San Francisco has Jock Peterson and Mike Yastrzemski, both left-handed hitters like Calhoun in the corners. Uh, Austin Slater in center field versus right-handed pitchers. Uh, Tommy Ostella as the DH, also a left-handed hitter. Uh, it looks like Calhoun might replace Donovan Walton as a left-handed bench bat, but uh, he's a very poor defensive outfielder. Uh, that doesn't augur well for much more than a bench bat. Uh, Walton is hitting uh, 182 with a 529 OPS, one homer in 59 at bats. So, you know, I don't, I don't see much happening with Willie Calhoun. It's really kind of a name out of the past who hasn't made the name for himself that we, that we expected. Uh, and really, as I, th- I think, just a, a bat off the bench in case somebody else should get injured. Yeah, occasional pinch hitting duty maybe. And then, of course, uh, when Luis Gonzalez gets back, he was hitting 300 when he went on the IL. So, And he's a left-handed hitter and a corner outfielder like Calhoun. And it looks just like Calhoun's just not in a good position to get a lot of plate appearances unless more people get hurt, as you say. But that's a heck of a thing to count on if you're a fantasy manager thinking about this because, of course, we know that injuries are up, but it's quite a specific thing to to think that uh, any of the guys that we've talked about will go on the IL to create a playing time opportunity for Willie Calhoun. It, the thing is about him... I think he has some hitting talent. You know, there you, we saw it when he was in Texas in fits and starts. He'd come up and blast the ball all over the place, and then he'd get, you know, moved out of the lineup because he's such a poor defender, and then he'd start complaining. I'm so good, you should keep playing me, and it rubbed everybody the wrong way, it seemed like, and all of a sudden Willie Calhoun is one of those guys, I don't know, it just, he might be one of those guys who has some skill, but his personality or his approach to the game just get in the way of him ever showing it. Yeah, it does. It, it does sound a bit like that. I mean, in in, in uh, Texas, he was kind of demanding uh, demanding to trade if he couldn't get more playing time. Well, they finally gave it to him. Uh, but we don't expect a whole lot to change. I think now that he's moved into uh, to San Francisco, and certainly not someone I think you want to be jumping on in your waiver wire. Also, better news for the Giants, they activated Anthony DeSclafani, the starting pitcher. He was on the 60-day IL. Uh, Jake Crumpler covered this story for Playing Time today at BaseballHQ.com. What do we expect from DeSclafani now that he's reactivated? Uh, DeSclafani was activated ahead of Tuesday's matchup in Atlanta. He'd missed uh, the previous two months while dealing with right ankle inflammation. 
32-year-old will slot into his rightful place in the San Francisco rotation, uh, giving the club a healthy five-man group for the first time in quite a while. I shouldn't say that too loudly. Uh, his playing time will return uh, to that of a regular starters. Um, Alvarez was the victim of the roster crunch instead of returning uh, Sam Long to the minors after he was pushed out of the rotation due to the activations of DeSclafani and Cobb. Long takes up Alvarez's previous long relief role. Uh, injury doesn't seem that serious, so he could be back in the bullpen sometime soon. The spot opens up, but for now, his grasp of the uh, hold percentage will diminish. 33-year-old pitched to a 5.28 ERA and 15.1 innings prior to the injury. And what do we expect from Di Sclafani now that he's back? He's he's a good pitcher, and he was certainly one of the rescues that uh, San Francisco developed over the past couple of years, kind of a washout in Cincinnati, and he finds his way to San Francisco, like Kevin Gosman from Baltimore and a couple of others, and the career just got rejuvenated. He seemed to really turn into quite a good pitcher. Our projected balance for the year is 15, 15 starts, a 4.14 ERA, a 1.34 whip, uh, 88 BPV. So kind of a middling starter, uh, a guy who's not going to help you a whole lot, but probably won't hurt you a whole lot either. Uh, 4.18 expected earn run average, uh, just kind of right in, in that range. So uh, an okay guy if you need somebody in a, in a, in a spot, but uh, certainly not someone who's going to be a great help to a fantasy team either. And meanwhile, uh, you mentioned Jose Alvarez, the pitcher who was kind of filling in here and there. He's going to get bounced back and probably not much fantasy value there either. No, right. I don't expect much from, from Jose Alvarez at all at this point in terms of fantasy value. Value His, uh, his just playing time is really just diminished because of the current roster crunch for Di Scafani coming back on. Going over to Milwaukee, kind of a sad note, uh, Lorenzo Cain was released. Uh, they call it designated for assignment, but basically they've released him in Milwaukee, and that has led to something of a shakeup in the Milwaukee outfield. Of course, that team is struggling. Uh, Dan Mark is covering the Milwaukee outfield situation in playing time tomorrow this week. Uh, what do we know about Lorenzo Cain? Well, you know, the short-term effect at this point is Lorenzo Cain just wasn't producing this year at the level at which uh, at which they, they would have hoped. And um, the short-term effect of, of this will lead to a substantial increase in playing time for Tyrone Taylor. Uh, however, Taylor will have to prove capable of maintaining that role. His overall skills remain in fairly strong shape, but he's faltered significantly in June. A, a 53 hard contact index, a 37 expected power index, uh, and a minus four BPV. If those things don't rise in a short time, uh, Milwaukee can find itself looking for some help in the outfield. Uh, at this point, he doesn't look a whole lot better than uh, than Kane was producing. Uh, in the short term, Jonathan Davis was recalled Saturday, appears poised to serve as the team's fifth outfielder. That will likely change when Colton Wong is able to return, uh, which should be by the end of the month. And at that time, Jace Peterson will likely have to shift to the outfield, continue to see playing time. Uh, while his career track record doesn't scream out as a player who needs to remain in the lineup, Peterson has been quite effective this season. Particularly from a fantasy perspective, six homers, eight stolen bases, 24 runs, 24 RBIs, 42 BPV. Uh, you know, sort of a, a so-so, okay kind of guy if you're looking for uh, a little bit of help and, and qualifies at a number of positions. So Peterson is someone perhaps to keep an eye on if he's on your, uh, on your waiver wire. Of course, the thing about Peterson is you never know. He goes in spurts. So he'll have a week when he steals six bases and – it's a couple of home runs and then a week when he does absolutely nothing. 
And so you have to be ready for that kind of that kind of production or lack thereof from him. Uh, Bryce Turang was mentioned uh, in the column that first brought up the possibility of Kane losing playing time, uh, though his fit is kind of unclear for a couple of reasons. Uh, first, he started only nine games in center field this season, uh, instead remaining primarily a shortstop. And second, Terang hasn't necessarily forced the team's hand for a promotion by posting just a 309 uh, on base percentage. Uh, so, you know, not, not the kind of guy who's forcing his way into the majors. Reports from uh, local regional newspapers suggest that he could be on the way up soon so he could remain a fit despite some warning signs. Yeah, it's an interesting situation. I think this is one of those deals where the best advice we can give is for fantasy managers to just watch what's going on because there could be some more shuffling going on, especially if Taylor doesn't kind of speed it up. He had a three-run homer on Thursday night of this week, but otherwise, I think as you mentioned, uh, soggy kind of June, 169 batting average, a 206 on on-base percentage, 17 strikeouts, two walks. I mean, he was slugging at 529. I guess a couple of homers will help that in the short run, but uh, the whole Taylor thing looks like it's kind of fraught with risk for the Milwaukee Brewers and for fantasy managers. Uh, I think that's some a situation, as you said, that's fluid enough that to, fantasy managers need to keep an eye on it. And I wanted to say something about the Milwaukee Brewers and how they handled this whole thing. Lorenzo Cain got DFA'd and they knew they were going to do this. He wasn't playing, but they held on to him at the major league level and kept him on the roster just long enough that he qualified for a bit bigger of a pension. And the Major League pen Players Pension is, uh, whatever it is, went up to $7,500 a month in his retirement uh, once he uh, once he starts collecting. And, and uh, it's quite a boost for him. And it was a really solid thing for the, for the club management to do. They could have just let him go and moved along. But they held on those few extra days or a week or whatever it was. And I say kudos to Milwaukee for helping a guy out. Yeah, very definitely for that. And and uh, you, you wish the best for Lenzo Kane. He's had a great career and uh, may, in fact, catch on somewhere uh, to kind of finish out the season. He's, he's a good enough outfielder that uh, who's been struggling really badly this year, but a good enough outfielder that uh, he, he could, could play somewhere uh, and might get hot and be productive for a few weeks. I think so too. And, uh, you know, he, he could function as a pinch runner, a defensive replacement, that kind of thing, especially if you've got a contending team that is looking in the very short run, has injury troubles, perhaps. It, it has been a pretty rough year for Lorenzo Kane at 179 for a batting average. And he was striking out, you know, not as, not as much as some people, but more than his usual record was around 15, 16%. It's up to 23 this year's walks really fell. Everything's going in the wrong direction for Lorenzo Cain. And uh, of course we wish him well. And again, congratulate the Milwaukee Brewers for doing something nice for a guy who really was a good soldier for that club for a long time. Yeah, very, very definitely. Moving along, uh, San Diego Padres activated C.J. Abrams again uh, while Manny Machado's out. This is a peculiar situation. Talking about it with uh, our guest Jason Collette on the show today. Uh, playing time today, coverage by Jock Thompson. Uh, what does Jock make of the situation in San Diego, especially since the Manny Machado situation is so fluid? Well, uh, Abrams owned a 314, 365-507 uh, slash line in uh, hitter Phil de El Paso, uh, really a bit on fire lately. Machado has yet to be placed on the IL in the hope that he can rebound quickly from what looks like a, a bad lower leg injury on Sunday. And 
that has now been diagnosed as a sprain. Uh, Abrams has started started both Monday and Tuesday games at shortstop. Haseon Kim is moving to third base. No playing time adjustments yet. Abrams may not get much opportunity if Machado is okay. Uh, we'll just have to keep our eye on this and see exactly what happens. It is a really interesting situation, and it's kind of difficult for those of us who have Manny Machado on any of our fantasy rosters, especially in leagues where you have to make weekly decisions on putting a guy on reserve, uh, much less the IL, because he's not on the IL, and most leagues require the player to be on the IL. But if you're looking at NFBC-style play, you just have those seven reserve spots. And, of course, you can adjust them twice a week, but, gosh, I've... I don't know what to do with Manny Machado. I've got him on reserve, and I think I'm just going to have to wait until I hear that he actually is coming back to play and just hope that it, the announcement gets made on a Thursday and not on a Friday afternoon after it's too late to lock the lineup. Right, yeah, that seems to be the, like the only thing you could do at this point. C.J. Abrams uh, is certainly a, a prospect with a, a whole lot of potential, but you have to remember with Abrams, he's 21 years old uh, and is still struggling a bit uh, adjusting to major league pitching. 174 batting average, uh, 216 expected batting average, minus three BPB. So probably not someone you want to jump on in uh, uh, in redraft leagues. Uh, a much better, better certainly uh, uh, get in a uh, in a uh, long term league. And anybody who's looking at C.J. Abrams uh, is probably more interested in the speed uh, as well, more than the power. He's got a 50% ground ball rate, so uh, any power expectations, I think, have to be tempered. And that 35% fly ball rate, which is low, is pretty much in line with his minor league record these last couple of years, so I don't think we can accept, expect much in that regard. Uh, he has one stolen base so far in 76 big league plate appearances. If you prorate that out, that'd be about a, what, a, nine steel season, something like that. So that's something else to look at. But again, I don't think we can depend on it or count on it in any way. It'd be a bit of a speculation. Yeah. At this point, only a 50% stolen base percentage. So uh, one stolen base, one caught stealing. So if, if those things get subtracted, it's a wash. Speaking of shortstop prospects, how about the Pirates finally promoting O'Neill Cruz? This is a big story in Pittsburgh and around baseball, and O'Neill Cruz is crushing it ever since he got on uh, on the field in Pittsburgh, uh, most notably because of his arm strength throwing the ball from shortstop. I saw the other day, I think he threw a ball over there at 109 miles an hour, which is better than most Major League fastballs. Everyone, it seems, has been clamoring for O'Neill Cruz to be, brought, be called up, uh, and he... That became official on Monday. Uh, the Pittsburgh will use him at shortstop and see if uh, can see some outfield time as well. Uh, we've been gradually adding uh, uh, adding playing time to O'Neill Cruz. Uh, certainly an exciting ball player and uh, someone that we're going to keep an eye on. If he's not been drafted in your league, you want to grab him right away. Uh, so this week so far, so far four four at bat, eighteen at bats, four hits, four runs scored, seven RBIs, uh, one stolen base, uh, hitting two twenty two. Uh, our expectation is that all of that will get better. Uh, we're projecting a 301 on base percentage for the remainder of the year, a $19 ball player. Slugging percentage of 286. That's something that caught my eye. And he hasn't drawn a walk yet in the big leagues, although he's not striking out either. 7.1% strikeout rate uh, through games of Thursday of this week. Uh, I think O'Neill Cruz is just an interesting player, but I caution that uh, there may be some growing pains here. He's very young, and he's also very big for a shortstop, and sometimes that 
complicates the defensive side of things. And when the defensive side of things gets complicated, hard enough for shortstops anyways, young guys, look at C.J. Abrams, for example, and all of a sudden the defensive responsibilities start to weigh on the hitting and vice versa. And you, It's easy for a young guy in that situation to get into a vicious cycle of, I'm not hitting, so it presses on my fielding, which causes me to field poorly, which causes my hitting to get worse, that kind of thing. He seems to have all the confidence in the world, and it's only 14 plate appearances so far. But let's uh, let's not anoint this guy the next coming of Cal Ripken. Yeah, very definitely. Let's... Uh... Uh, he doesn't need that kind of pressure on him at the moment in, in, in any event, but uh, certainly someone who looks like a good ball player, but still also, as you said, very, very young. So keep expectations in check at this point. That said, the modern fantasy baseball, if you have a fab rule, as most leagues do, that will make O'Neill Cruz eligible this weekend for the big fab run, I bet there's going to be some pretty stout bids. I would bet so. I'm sure there'll be some very stout bids on O'Neill Cruz, especially in a week when there may not be a whole lot out there on the uh, on the fab line. And certainly nothing exciting. Sometimes it's really tempting when you're looking at the fab list and the free agent list and you see all the sort of dross that's there, replacement level players. And this O'Neill Cruz name pops up and you think it's a it's like finding a diamond in a haystack, you know. <laughs> all of a sudden you, you kind of get dazzled and you might not realize that it's actually a rhinestone and you should look uh, more closely all, all the while. Let's go over to St. Louis. Uh, Nick, a couple of bits of news there. We'll start with Brandon Donovan, who seems to be solidifying his role for the Cardinals. Yeah, he does. Uh, his, uh, he's been playing very strongly lately. His versatility in the field has been a pleasant surprise for the Cardinals fans. Uh, but his performance at the plate has got them really excited. 326, 436, 449 slash line. Uh, power may be a mirage. A, a 91 power index, a 37 expected power index. Average looks like it could stick. Uh, 298 expected batting average. Uh, that's something we'll take any day. And due to his ability to play seemingly everywhere, hitting as high as second in the order with regularity, we bumped his playing time up, uh, added uh, 20% playing time at this point. Uh, Nolan Gorman uh, has also sh- hasn't shown the defensive prowess that Donovan has had, but his bat has also gotten him extra opportunities at DH, uh, as well as the edge in playing time over Juan Yepes and Imando Sosa. Corey Dickerson and Paul DeJong are playing time losers for the time being. Uh, Dickerson down 10% uh, battles both injury and performance issues, and DeJong remains at AAA Memphis. thing about St. Louis that I like watching is they're willing to make moves. Unlike their uh, state mates down in Kansas City, they have these young guys doing well in AAA, and they say, let's let's give them a look. You know, we have, and they're a good team. And it seems more surprising that a good team would be so willing to move guys up, but then maybe it shouldn't be because they're, it's just a well-run team. This, uh, Houston was the same. Remember the year that they brought up Jordan Alvarez? He was mashing like crazy in AAA, and they were a really good team, a, a World Series contender, and a lot of people looked at it and said, well, why would they bring this guy up when they've got a really well-established, solid team? And we saw why they brought him up, because he could hit. And uh, that's a lesson that I think a lot of teams could learn from the St. Louis Cardinals. Yeah, I think very definitely. I mean, that's the reason they're a good team is they're willing to make they're willing to make moves and bring up guys who seem to be hitting very well uh, in AAA and or, or who are extremely hot uh, and getting them into a major league uh, major league lineup for a short time and seeing what they can produce. So I really admire the Cardinals for doing that. That's uh, certainly the sign, I think, as you said, of a very well run ball club. And 
we've talked about this before at Baseball HQ Radio, Nick, but if the organization seems to know what it's doing, I think it, it behooves fantasy managers to say, well, if St. Louis thinks this guy can play, I'm going to take them at their word because generally speaking, they've been right about most of their players, unlike some organizations who stumble and bumble their way through and leave uh, guys hitting 110 at first base, hoping to inflate their trade value or something. It's, it's ludicrous, but when you separate the wheat from the chaff, as far as organizational skill is concerned, all of a sudden it's another reason to take a longer look at Brendan Donovan, for instance, and maybe give him a little edge over O'Neill Cruz, for example, because he's not playing with a good organization. Right. Very definitely. I think that makes a whole lot of sense. Uh, I, I think the, the organizational prowess, organizational record, uh, makes a whole lot of sense when you're looking at how their players may be used and may give you some uh, some confidence as a fantasy manager that if this guy comes up and is not hitting, they're going to get him out of the lineup instead of trying to keep him in there for three or four or five weeks until they finally decide he didn't really belong here in the first place. While he's killing you all the while. Yeah, exactly right. It, it's, a, it's a real interesting thing. Uh, also in St. Louis, uh, Tyler O'Neill was doing a little better lately, but he left Sunday's game this week due to a left hamstring tightness, not on the aisle yet as far as I know. I should mention Zach Larson, one of the new reporters at Baseball HQ, is covering the Cardinals for playing time today. Uh, what's the latest on Tyler O'Neill in that situation? Well, it's unfortunate news that O'Neill seemed to be turning a corner from his early season struggles. Uh, 40, since coming off the IL, a 318 batting average, 354. 477 uh, in 44 at-bats. We haven't changed the playing time for O'Neill yet. We're waiting for more information regarding how severe this injury may be, but uh, stay tuned. Juan Yepes looks to be the main beneficiary of any vacated plate appearances at the present time. And finally, Nick, uh, some changes going on with the Mets rotation. Uh, they were looking forward to getting Max Scherzer back, but right at the same time, it looks like Carlos Carrasco might be leaving for a while. He left a game with a back issue earlier this week. Phil Hertz covers the Mets for playing time today. What's the story? Uh, Carrasco was knocked around by the Astros, uh, as lots of people have been. Four hits, five earned runs, three homers, uh, before leaving in the third inning with the Mets trainer in tow. After the game, the Mets uh, noted the back issue, but did not indicate whether an IL stint or even a missed start was likely uh, being sent for an MRI at this point. And while we wait for information on that, we've made a small downward adjustment in his projected innings. The beneficiary of that reduction is likely to be Max Scherzer, who had a solid rehab outing with AAA Syracuse on June 21st. And even before that game, uh, Mets manager Buck Showalter said Scherzer was a consideration as a possible starter on June 26th. So Carrasco's back difficulties certainly increased the likelihood that Scherzer will rejoin the Mets rotation, uh, if not on June 26th, very, very soon. One of those interesting situations where if you're a Max Scherzer owner, depending on your league rules, you might hope it's not Sunday of this week because you can't get him in your lineup. But if he starts on Monday or Tuesday or whenever the uh, Mets play next, then you can. And of course, you'd rather have him in your lineup than not, even though it'll be his first game back. And you've, there's always those concerns about some rust and so forth. I don't have those concerns where Max Scherzer's concerned. Yeah, with Max Scherzer, you don't worry about that nearly as much, I think. You know you're going to get a a 110% performance uh, out of him at, at least, maybe a 200% performance with the, with the guy giving everything he's got uh, out there on the mound. Because he wants to make a good impression and show everybody that he's back. One of many interesting situations to look at, Nick. Uh, thanks very much for the update, and we'll talk to you again in seven days' time. All right. Thank you, Patrick. 
Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go to the American League and BaseballHQ.com columnist and co-general manager Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Glad to be here as always, Peter. Let's start in Chicago where the White Sox have had two shots of bad injury news. We'll start with outfielder Adam Engel, who is placed on the injured list with a hamstring problem. Rick Green covers the White Sox for playing time today. Uh, What's going to happen to Adam Engel's playing time while he's on the shelf? Yeah, it continues to be next man up for the White Sox. And I don't know, anecdotally, I haven't done the deep dive on this, but it seems like the number of muscle strains on this team are just off the charts, right? Um, in Engel's case, it sounded initially like he might miss the minimum, but now it sounds quite a bit worse than that. Uh, so we'll have to stay tuned and see what the, uh, see what the prognosis as it evolves in the coming week or two. Uh, but for now it's Gavin Sheets who gets recalled from AAA. He was out in right field on Thursday night and he'll get the, uh, first chance to fill in for Engel who was filling in for Eloy Jimenez and some of the others in that outfield, right? Yeah. Musical chairs in the worst kind of way. I thought the White Sox had a pretty good reputation for keeping their players healthy, at least uh, over the last few years. But you're right, I do seem to have uh, have noticed a lot of those kind of muscle strain type injuries uh, this year. Has something changed in Chicago about their training regimen or something along those lines? What's going on? Yeah, I would love to have unlimited time and do the deeper dive into that to, one, see if my perception is accurate, and then, yeah, to check out uh, you know, if there's been some staff changes there or if this correlates with the Roots' return or how guys are getting days off, et cetera. I mean, you know, some of these, like I, I think we've established that, uh, you know, for instance, Eloy Jimenez is just a little uh, a, a little clumsy or injury prone. But, you know, Tim Anderson just came back from a muscle pull and it seems like there have been a uh, been a been a spate of them in this uh, franchise, you know, not just this year either. So uh, I would perhaps somebody local is already asking these questions. And we'll have to wait and see. Meanwhile, how excited should fantasy managers be about Sheets coming back for this weekend's fab run? Uh, probably not tremendously excited. Uh, you know, while we're waiting to see how long Angle is out and what Sheets' opportunity looks like, uh, you know, it, 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 there, there's a window for him here, but there's not necessarily reason to think he is going to uh, you know, stick a claim here for longer term work than the length of Engel's injury. Uh, you know, if you go back to last year, Engel did, uh, excuse me, Sheets did have 11 home runs in, you know, very sporadic playing time, uh, only 160 at bats. That's 40 home run power for a full season if you ever got that kind of a look again. But we saw nothing along those lines this year so far. Uh, before he had been sent down, he was only hitting 207 with four homers and, you know, 140 at bats, roughly the same amount of playing time. Uh, and then, you know, he had only a cup of coffee in AAA, 37 minor league at bats, and, uh, you know, was hitting better down there, but certainly not anything to get excited about. But, you know, it's a, it's a couple of weeks and we'll see what, uh, we'll see if he can find that 2021 swing again, I guess. And in shallow leagues, you could do worse than a guy who's got regular playing time. And that's especially in the 12 team single formats, uh, playing time is what it's all about. And if you had the idea that Sheets is going to play real regularly until they get, uh, get uh, Adam Engel back or maybe Moncada back or whatever they're planning to do out there, um, playing time works in, in uh, shallower leagues, though, not so much. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, you, I think you could count on 20 plus at bats a week here, which like you say, in leagues of a certain depth is kind of all the information you need to know. And it's not like he's Jeff Mathis where you think he's going to go one for 20 every week. But, um, you know, there's there's more life in the bat than that. So, sure, he's a must-add in an AL-only league. But as you get into the mixed-league universes, uh, I don't think I'm interested in a shallow 10- or 12-team mix. But, you know, in 15 and more or in leagues that are, you know, deeper because they have unlimited IL stints and, the you know, the depth of the free agent pool gets gets thinned out, like in my Tout Wars league, for instance, is a 15 mixed but with the unloaded dl spots you know by this time of year uh the waiver pool is somewhat uh worse than even in sort of an nfbc format where there's uh you know a fixed bench size so you know those considerations come into play when you're making these decisions but uh you know i would certainly expect she's will get claimed by Tal wars league this weekend for instance meanwhile ray uh another guy who is filling in for a guy danny mendick was doing actually pretty well, I thought, uh, but he's going to miss the rest of the season. He has a torn ACL. Any interest caused by playing time changes on this front? You know, like you say, it's it, it, we're now in the realm of battlefield promotions and backup to the backup to the backup, right? So uh, it's probably not that surprising to think that uh, you know the next man up in this situation is not anything exciting. You know, but the. <clears throat> probably the big news here is that, you know, Mendick had been acquitting himself pretty well. And if you're in one of those like 12 team ALs, like you were referencing earlier, you know, Mendick was a pretty helpful piece. He was hitting 289 with a couple of home runs and hundred at bats and had been relatively productive while Tim Anderson was out. Um, so now he was even, it looked like he might even push Josh Harrison and Lurie Garcia for some second base playing time when Anderson came back this week. But now that obviously uh, gets deferred while Mendick hits the IL. So Josh Harrison continues to play, which you know is good news for Josh Harrison. But if you're hoping to accumulate statistics from Josh Harrison, maybe not such good news. He's been uh, underwhelming, shall we say, hitting uh, you know 217 with uh, which isn't that far off from a 235 expected batting average that we see. Uh, no power and uh, you know, overall skills that appear very much in decline in his in his late thirties. So I think it would have been an interesting question whether Harrison had been would have been able to hold off Mendick for the second base job if Mendick had stayed healthy. But now we'll we'll never know, or at least we won't we, we won't know for a while. Meanwhile, though, the Sox also called up prospect Lennon Sosa. That's Lennon with a Y, not an I, in case there's any communist uh, overtones here, what might we expect from Lennon Sosa? <laughs> yeah. It, it, no truth to the rumor that Stalin Jones remains in triple A, right? That's, <laughs> that's right. Molotov uh, Anderson is coming back as well. Exactly. Um, but you know, as far as Sosa in our, uh, you know, back in the preseason, when we do our org reports for the minor leagues, uh, you know, Sosa was, he did make the White Sox prospect list as our 15th and final entry on their top 15, uh, graded him as only a, a 6C prospect, which kind of speaks to the depth of the, or lack of depth of the White Sox org chart that he made the top 15 with that kind of a rating, which basically says that he's got a 50-50 chance of, you know, emerging as a platoon player at the big league level. So, you know, nothing exciting at all. Um, the, that write-up at the time said, he was a solid defensive shortstop, but that his bat was uh, you know, 
rather anemic in that it was a ground ball heavy contact approach and you know there was no, without power potential etc um that you know really capped his fantasy value which is of course the lens we use to develop these prospect lists uh but you know that said despite the pretty bleak outlook this preseason he was outperforming those meager expectations in the minors this year he was in the southern league double uh, a ball he was hitting 331 uh and it was not a ground ball singles heavy 331 he had a 933 ops and 14 home runs so that sort of suggests that something changed uh to that end when he got called up you know we don't often reevaluate those uh, ratings that we assign in the preseason, we generally try to hold them uh, for, and reevaluate them again the next offseason. But in this case, you know, the way Sosa was going, we sort of had to make a change. So we changed them from a uh, 6C prospect all the way to an 8C, which gives them a 50-50 chance of being a uh, everyday player. So that's, that's a notable change. Um, and again, you know, given the lack of an obstacle that Josh Harrison and Larry Garcia are, and if Tim Anderson continues to need the occasional day off, and given the Mankata injury and Bur- you know Jake Berger filling in at third base, there there are opportunities in this infield. So we might see a little bit of Lennon Sosa in the uh, in the coming weeks. Seeing a, a Sosa back in Chicago will be interesting. Uh, Sammy played in the, uh, on the South Side, didn't he? Yeah, you get traded for the White Sox to the Cubs, right? I thought so too. Yeah, the guy right behind Sosa in the Southern League batting average race. I don't think he qualifies yet, but he's going to. He's an Angels prospect, hitting three twenty-seven with ten home runs. He's a guy named Trey Cabbage, which is a really great name for a baseball player, I think. Uh, but do you happen to know what the Angels affiliate is called at that level in the Southern League? Oh, that Southern League has so many good nicknames, right? Um, I don't know. Are they the Jumbo Shrimp or is it the Trash Pandas? Yeah, they are the Rocket City Trash Pandas. Uh, good for you for, <laughs> for hauling that one up from the depths of your of your memory. Uh, do you know why they call them the Rocket City Trash Pandas? I really have no idea. Rocket City is because the, they play in Madison, Alabama, which I guess isn't far from Huntsville, and there's a, some kind of big NASA operation, flight training oh, center yeah. or something yeah. there. Space camp, right? Space camp, yeah, exactly. And uh, and trash pandas because they wanted to honor all the raccoons that apparently live there and get into people's garbage cans, and they call them trash pandas <laughs> for their coloring and stuff like that. So, I, I did not know the trash panda was a reference to a raccoon. Uh, I didn't we either. <laughs> uh, maybe they're rooting around in the uh, in the trash cans looking for cabbage, but uh, he's in another town altogether. Uh, Trey Cabbage was originally drafted by Minnesota, it so happens, so it seems appropriate to move to the Twins, who've had some infield turnover of late themselves, especially after Jorge Polanco hit the I.L. for the first time in his career with lower back tightness. Our new guy at Baseball HQ, Ryan Hoover, analyzes the Twins as part of his Playing Time Tomorrow coverage of the A.L. Central, and he looked at the Minnesota infield. What's the latest there? Yeah, it's interesting. This infield has been at least as much of a revolving door as the White Sox infield we were just talking about. But I I think the difference is the options are better, or at least the depth pieces they're having to turn to due to this, their own state of injuries has been, you know, it is more interesting than getting down to the Danny Mendicks and Lennon Sosas of the world. Uh, So for instance, you know, this week when Polenko went on the IL, the move was to recall Alex Kirilov. And you know, you get some moving parts there. Luis Arias have been playing a lot of third, a lot of first base, excuse me, and he moves back to second base to make room for Kirilov. You know, Kirilov's arc to the season has been 
interesting. Of course, he you know he missed a bunch of time in the last year with with a wrist injury, and then that seemed to still be bothering him this spring. He got off to a he made the team, got off to a rough start, got uh, but it sounded but then it seemed like the wrist was still bothering him, so they shut him down for a bit. Apparently, somehow magically managed to clear up whatever was bothering him in the wrist. Maybe warmer weather helped and sent him out on a rehab assignment and then a trip that turned into a triple a stint uh off of rehab and he was just mashing in triple a so now he's back up uh the swing and the wrist seem to be completely straightened out so he'll get a long look at first base arias slides slides over the second uh probably means the loser here is jose miranda who you know had been you know is a little bit more versatile than Kirilov and that he could play first, second, third, but hasn't been hitting as much. So, uh, you know, Kirilov essentially takes Miranda's role with Arias moving around. Um, it, you know, Miranda might be short for the roster here. We'll see how long he sticks around. He's probably the one that can sent out when Blanco comes back. The other loser here is Nick Gordon, who probably, who, who seems to get squeezed out of the infield. His best half of playing time seems to be playing center field on Brian Buxton, Byron Buxton's, uh, you know, maintenance days, which are, you know, which are not trivial. You know, Buxton does seem to get a little bit more downtime than, you know, the average everyday, you know, year superstar, but, uh, you know, Gordon gets that work in center field to keep the defense up. But that's a, that's about the only path to playing time he's got as long as these other guys are around. And just to further complicate things, I think Miguel Sano is not terribly far away either. So he's going to come back and further clog up the, uh, at least the first base DH component of this picture come come July. You know, I read a story just today somewhere, and I wish I could remember to give them credit where it's due. But uh, apparently, the Twins have announced that Buxton's only going to play every other day for the rest of the season because they are worried. They the rest, rest of the season, wow! So for the whole season, yeah, he's only going to play on alternate days, which means all of a sudden Nick Gordon looks like he's going to have some playing time somewhere unless they want to figure out some other way of doodling around with their various uh, flexible players. But for right now, I think Nick Gordon looks like if you were thinking of maybe dropping him or something on on the basis of playing time, you might want to look into it. Yeah, that's right. And especially, you know, if if you've got either daily lineups and that's predictable or even, uh, you know, a couple of times a week lineups move lineup moves like in the NFBC or TGFBI format where you get the the Friday lineup changes. If you know Gordon's in line for even two starts on the weekend, you can pop pop him in there and look for the uh, the stolen base contribution that uh, you know the, that you're likely to see from him. That is uh, that's big news. I had not read that one yet. The flip side of it seems to me that in weekly moves leagues, you might have to start thinking about whether you can put Byron Buxton out there at all if you know he's only going to get three or four starts in a week. Either there's something really chronic going on there that they have to manage him that carefully, or I would want to wait and see if, you know, are at least some of those every other day's DHs. But boy, yeah, that's a, that's a dagger for Buxton, Buxton's value if you're looking at either three or, you know, in a six-game week, he was only playing three games. That's a raw. Let's move over to your neck of the woods. Uh, the Red Sox are expected to activate second baseman, actually outfielder too, Christian Arroyo from the COVID IL, and that's supposed to happen today, and we're talking on Friday. Chris Olson covers the Red Sox for playing time today. What happens with the Boston playing time now that Arroyo's back in harness? Yeah, so Arroyo had been working as a, you know, he, he obviously got squeezed out by the Trevor Story signing. He looked like he had a, a, a claim to a big chunk of the second base role until Story showed up in you know, late March. 
Uh, so since then, he's been sort of a short side platoon guy, primarily in right field, most recently with uh, Franchi Cordero, who gets out there a little bit, or Jackie Bradley Jr. Uh, but while Arroyo has been out, it's been Rob Refstadter who's been playing that role, and he's been raking. He's like 11 for 29 with a home run, a couple of doubles, a, you know, a couple of you know, really nice plays in the outfield. One, one in particular game saving catch that was a uh, highlight real quality. Um, and they're both right-handed, so we'll see. I, I think Ref Snyder probably sticks around with this activation, but uh, Ref Snyder swinging the hot bat might uh, keep Arroyo from getting back into that sort of regular short side platoon kind of work. He might, uh, although he might get a, you know, maybe they'll make a make up an off day or two for Trevor Story to get him back in the lineup too, because that's one thing the Red Sox have been doing lately is they had Jeter Downs up earlier this week for just a couple of days and. Got uh, got Rafi Devers a day off at third base by playing down. So it seems like Cora is in the mode of trying to find a day off or two for the core of that infield that is also the core of their lineup. Have you read or heard anything up there about the uh, Jackie Bradley said he had eye surgery to fix uh, something with his vision? And the quote I saw uh, from Jackie Bradley in the news article that I read uh, quoted him as saying, when you're trying to hit a baseball, it helps to have good vision. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> you think? I, <laughs> that, does, that does seem important. I did see that story. It kind of reminded me a little bit of the, uh, the Harrison Bader story from last year where he basically said his allergies were so bad that his eyes were watering so much that he couldn't see the baseball, which, you know, very similarly sounds like a very bad thing, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, in Bradley's case, he said he got a, uh, you know, in particular, there was somebody who you know, wears Coke bottle glasses. Um, he said he had a astigmatism, which doesn't, which is not what I have. But I, you know, knowing enough about these afflictions, astigmatism has been characterized to me as like losing like the vertical hold on your television, like things like move up and down. Which, to your point, seems like really, really bad from a perspective of trying to hit a baseball while that's happening, right? I'm wondering if Jackie Bradley might be a sneaky opportunity here in some leagues. Because while people don't know that he's done that, maybe he's going to end up being a better hitter than he has been over the last couple of years, especially. Yeah, it is interesting. I'm looking at his at his splits right now, and uh, you know they aren't remarkable or anything, but uh, you know the contact rate has been up you know, quite a bit in June and been cre- been creeping up. You know, even since mid May, he's been making more contact. You know, consistently. You know, in the uh, you know, he's, he's running at about over a month now with, with his contact rate over 80%, which, to, you know, in today's game is, you know, pretty darn good. Uh, the power and speed haven't been there. It's a, it's a pretty empty contact right now. But, you know, if I think back to the Jackie Bradley from his you know, first stint with the Red Sox, it's been, you know, a few years that he's been pretty bad now. He was pretty bad um, last year for the Brewers. And before that, he had, you know, he had a pretty good short 2020. Uh, but it, the, the full season 2019 was pretty bad. And, but, but the thing that I always think of him as is, you know, he's a super streaky hitter. You know, he'll go really, really well for a month or more at a time and then really, really bad for a month at a time. You know, famously in October 2018 when the Red Sox won the World Series, he, he almost single-handedly won that ALCS against Houston. Uh, you know, with a couple of big home runs, a grand slam, and it just so happened that his, you know, I thought of it as his monthly hot streak came in the postseason. Um, but you know, we haven't seen a hot streak from him probably pretty literally since then. So, uh, you know, I would not, 
I, I read the news about the vision and I thought, well, you know, maybe there's a good month or two coming from Jackie Bradley here. Maybe we'll see the hot streak we haven't seen in a while. So yeah, he's probably going to be on some of my bid lists this weekend. Uh, just fishing around for that. In the story, he said that he was, he, he noticed that having had the, the surgery that his foul ball count was way down, that he was making better contact in that way as well, not missing the ball under, especially and just fouling it straight back or fouling it back on an angle that he, he felt like he was making better contact and the, it was manifesting as fewer foul balls as well as more balls in play. So, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe we're onto something. It, it wouldn't be unprecedented for somebody to do something with their eyesight that actually really transformed their ability. I'm thinking of, well, it's not exactly your eyesight, but Willie Adamas, when he moved from Tampa to Milwaukee, it was interviewed about why he was all of a sudden hitting so, so well. And he said, I just couldn't see the ball in that Tampa stadium because of the lighting and yeah. the shadows and all that kind of stuff. And he moves into a better lit stadium. Maybe the roof is open sometimes, those kinds of things. All of a sudden, see ball, hit ball. It helps if you can get part one. Yeah, exactly. And the, you know, looking at Bradley's numbers here, his, uh, you know, his contact rate for the season is at 79%. And over the last month, it's, you know, it, it's into the 80s. Uh, like I said, the power and speed haven't followed yet. And, you know, he's not a, he's not a slugger by any means, but it does sort of stand to reason that, um, you know, if you think about, you know, making the adjustment to actually being able to see the ball again, that, you know, the, what we're talking about with, balls that he was fouling off and he's now hitting fair, uh, uh, you know, might, might be sort of a first stage of a recovery, but then he's sort of got to, you know, continue to refine his plate approach, maybe get a little more selective again and, you know, start focusing on, see what I did there, focusing, <laughs> focusing on the pitches he can drive. Right. Uh, so maybe that's the next level here, uh, or maybe I'm just wish casting as a Sox fan. Did you notice anything about his walk rate? I wonder if he's getting better at discerning the the, the marginal pitches on the edges. Exactly, yeah, going the other way. Uh, you know, he ten percent walk rate in April, down to six percent in May, and two percent in June. So he's kind of swinging at everything. But yeah, you know, maybe he's so excited he can actually he hit can actually area. see it. Yeah. Where it is. Anyway, hey, look at that's over there. I can hit that. Let me go do it. Yeah. <laughs> and now, right. the better part of Bauer is actually not actually showing you can make contact with everything, right? Yeah, exactly. Also in Boston, Ray uh, Kike Hernandez was out on rehab for a hip injury, and then the report said he felt discomfort while he was swinging a bat, which has slowed his rehab and uh, delayed his return for sure. What are the playing time ramifications for Kike Hernandez not being ready to come back as soon as we thought? Yeah, you know, Cora didn't seem to want to call it a setback, but by the same token, I think last weekend they said he should be out on a rehab stint by now, and he's not out on a rehab stint by now. So, uh, you know, it certainly sounds to me like a setback by any other name. Um, but you know, I think one of the reasons that they're maybe you know, maybe downplaying this or not acting that concerned about it is they really aren't missing him. In addition to the fact that you know, Hernandez wasn't hitting all that well before he went out, you know, Jared Duran has been filling in uh, as the center fielder and leadoff hitter, at least against right-handed pitching, and he's uh, he's looked much better than he has in you know previous stints with the Red Sox. So, you know, we we talked I think last week or the week before about how he's gotten. Duran's gotten cups of coffee and not really uh, taken any advantage of them. And, you know, it's a chicken or egg thing, whether the cups of coffee were not ex extending into longer opportunities or if the Red Sox didn't believe in him enough to give him those longer opportunities and sort of clear the way for him for a while. 
But you know, now we're finally starting to see Duran maybe you know small sample size, but maybe kicking down the door a little bit. Uh, he's been hitting, you know, he's ten for thirty-three, taking some walks. It would, that's a batting average over three hundred, an OBP around three sixty. You know, he's been you know exciting on the bases, taking extra bases and that sort of thing. Three doubles and a triple. So that, you know, there you go. It's not all slap singles either. Um, you know, like I said, stealing a couple of bases here and there. Uh, so, you know, I don't think TJ is getting Wally pipped by any means, but Duran might be sticking a claim that he needs to stick around. And it'll be interesting, you know, tying this together with the previous discussion, it starts to get interesting to figure out how, <clears throat> how these pieces fit together when something has to give. If you've got, you want to play, if you want to keep Duran around, TK could go to right field, but that's where Bradley is. And Bradley's hitting a little bit better. So do we want to stick with him? And you know, you want to give up with him right when you just started seeing the ball again. So Kike probably can't be won't be happy just being a bad side platoon guy, but he can't really go back to the infield because Story Bogarts and Devers are all entrenched. And Frankie Cordero's been getting some time in right field as they try to get both Cordero and Bobby Dahl back into the lineup every so often. So uh, when TK comes back, even beyond Duran, there are kind of just too many pieces here. So somebody is going to have to get bumped off the roster. And, you know, the, the easy choice might be Duran, even if he's hitting, just because he's got options and they can send him back to the minors. But, you know, if he's been, if he continues to be sort of the spark plug of the top of the lineup, that, that it's hard to go back to TK, who's been kind of a wet blanket at the top of the lineup all year long, too. So, you know, some tougher decisions are, arise, which circling back to the immediate point is that, you know, the Red Sox will probably take it pretty carefully with Kike because I, I don't think they are in any rush to have to face these decisions. Ray, I remember once upon a time, a lot of analysts, including some of our Baseball HQ analysts, were pretty excited about Reed Detmers of the Angels and perhaps even more this year after you threw that no-hitter back in May. The team has now demoted Reed Detmers to AAA. Uh, Jock Thompson covers his hometown club for playing time today. What has gone wrong for Reed Detmers? Yeah, there's really not been any good news there at all since the uh, since that no hitter. And if I remember it correctly, PD, I didn't pull this up this morning, but that no hitter was a was that what the, that the one that was a really weird one? Like he had like two walks and three strikeouts or something like that. It was a it was the ultimate bad no hitter, wasn't it? I believe that's correct, but I couldn't swear to it. Yeah, that's just a instinct of not going back to look at it. But that, that's kind of how I remember it. Anyway, um, since that day when the Babbitt gods were favoring him, uh, the reverse has been true. Uh, his ERA since that start a month ago has been closer to six than five. Uh, 27 innings, 17 runs, eight homers. Uh, and he are a, a whip up in the one fours, which is just, you know, pretty much deplorable in this day and age. Uh, and, you know, the strikeout to walk ratio is under two. So all of this is bad news. Uh, you know, on our pure quality start scale, uh, through all 12 starts, uh, you know, he's been averaging a uh, you know, something something in a range of a two, which is which is a rough outing. Um, so, yeah, it's, it, it's hard to say that the demotion was anything but deserved. I just did look up the uh, the uh, no hitter. It was against Tampa, and yeah, you're right. There was only two strikeouts and one walk, so there was a lot of balls in play. And as you said, maybe they were just hitting them right at the defenders. 
wasn't a wasn't a, an overpowering no hitter to say the least. No, that was definitely my recollection. I wasn't sure I had the facts right, but yeah, I, I think overpowering was not the uh, not the not the operative word there. Jock said in his analysis, this might just be a reset for Detmers. So do you think we should expect him back at some point in the season? And for that reason, might there be a buy low, very low opportunity here? Yeah, quite possibly, especially for dynasty league formats. You know, this is a pedigreed prospect who has, you know, taken some lumps in his, you know, in his first tours of the majors. So that's always a, uh, not always, but often a fruitful tree to shop under. Uh, Jock does point out that the Angels have four off days in the next 18 days, so they could probably get by without his rotation spot altogether. Maybe use a bullpen game or two to limp to the uh, to around the All Star break before Detmers could conceivably come back if he goes down and has you know four good starts in that run. So uh, as a result of that, Jock didn't really make any significant playing time allocations. Didn't give Detmers's innings to anybody else in that team because it appears to be a uh, sort of a shuffling of the current deck chairs. But uh, Jose Suarez and Kenny Rosenberg, two lefties, are probably the next call-ups if they need if the Angels get a little short or need a, uh, a spot start or something like that while Deppers is working out his kinks. Down in Tampa, the Rays got two solid slaps of bad news, offset a little by a tickle of good news. Chris Olson covering Tampa for playing time today. Let's start with the bad news. Two outfield injuries first. Manuel Margot. Yeah, rough news for Margot, who's having a really nice year amid the the carnage of the Rays. Uh, you know, they've taken as many blows as anybody. Uh, Margot crashed into the right field wall the other night trying to make a catch and it had to be carted off the field. Uh, there was an MRI done. I don't think we have the full results of that yet, but uh, Kevin Cash on the one hand called it positive news or more positive than not, I think was the direct quote. But I think that was really just a, it, it, as he further elaborated it, it seemed like he was saying there was a good chance Margot would be back this season. So clearly not just a, you know, whatever happened I, seems to be not just a bruise. It's something that's going to require some extended downtime. And I don't imagine we'll hear anything immediately about how long they really expect him to be out. But if it's September, at that point, we get into the debate that we've had also with some other very well-established players this season. Do you have to drop him in NFBC-style leagues where you have limited reserve slots? Can you afford to hold a guy from now till September as a dead slot? Yeah, I would think you'd have to drop him. You know, it, 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 Obviously, pending what the the real news is, but September is a long time away. And I think then the, you know, the other aspect of that is, uh, you know, if, assuming it's a low, it's a leg injury here, you have to wonder whether you get, you, you would get any stolen base value when he came back either. So yeah, I'd probably be dropping Margot if, at this point, if I had a, if that was a decision I had to face, definitely, a, definitely a blow. Meanwhile, Kevin Kiermeyer will be out for at least 10 days with an injured left hip, which reportedly has been an issue for more than a year, but I guess it just got so bad that he had to do something about it. What do you think we should expect on that score? Yeah, so it sounds like even though it's been a long-term issue, maybe the fix is just that dramatic that they don't they continue to not want to you know, address the root cause. They're going to try a cortisone shot, I guess, and hope that a cortisone shot and 10 days of rest will be enough to get him back. And again, you know, given how the Rays, value center field defense. I'm sure they would very much like to have 
Kiermaier back if he's in all functional while Marco is out. Um, but for the short term, while they're both out and while what, waiting to see how this shot uh, might help Kiermaier, Josh Lowe is back. Uh, he'll play some center field along with Brent Phillips, who now is, I think, the best defensive outfielder on this team, which that, that bar just got lowered. But like I said, the Rays do value that center field defense. They've kept Margo and Kiermaier together for so long <clears throat> so that they always have somebody, one of them available to play center. So uh, Phillips probably becomes that guy now. Uh, but they also recalled Luke Raley uh, and Jonathan Aranda, uh, who's an infielder. They're, they're both left-handed hitters. So now you have the option to move around. Vidal Bruhan, uh, Arazo Reina could come out from DH and play some corner outfield from time to time. Uh, you know, so it's going to be, as always with the Rays, it's going to be a mix and match proposition. Uh, Rayleigh in particular, if you start looking at minor league numbers, was a little bit interesting. He was hitting 299 down there with seven homers, a 948 OPS in AAA. Uh, but yeah, I, I think Josh Lowe probably gets the longer look here while they kind of assess whether he's, uh, you know, wh- whether he could be a long-term contributor, they might as well make lemons out of, make lemonade out of lemons here by taking the long look at well when the other options are severely depleted. 25 RBIs in 24 games for Rayleigh as well at triple a, but that's producing runs. And that's something that the Rays could definitely use. Uh, of course, RBIs in triple a don't translate directly to RBIs in the big leagues for sur- for sure, but at least he was doing something down there with the stick, which is more than we can say for some of the guys that are currently on the roster because of all the injuries. Meanwhile, the good news, dare I say a ray of hope is that the rehab assignment of shortstop Wander Franco is going pretty well. He's playing at AAA Durham, and he could be back pretty soon. Yeah, it sounds like he's checking all the boxes on his way back to Tampa. He started out at uh, the Florida Complex League playing some rookie ball, uh, got a couple of games in there, went three for seven with a triple. Then they moved him up to AAA. He got one game in, uh, went one for five there. And I think we're going to see him in Tampa this weekend. I think maybe not tonight, but uh, on Saturday, it looks like he's on track to uh, to be back at shortstop for the Rays, which obviously will be uh, a steadying influence there, given all the attrition we're talking about in virtually every other spot in that lineup. And given the performance of Taylor Walls, who's been really dreadful, he's I think he's hitting about 160. And the other night, I don't know if you saw it on a highlight or if you happened to be watching the game, but uh, they were in tough against the Yankees, and he got picked off of third to end the inning, and I think the bases were loaded at the time. There's absolutely no reason for him to get picked off in that situation, and he got picked off in that situation. I think one of those guys who's trying too hard to, to make an impact and, and not being uh, sufficiently cognizant of what's going on around him, uh, it'll be nice to get Wander Franco back for sure, especially for his fantasy managers. And finally, uh, in Toronto, a bit of a injury mystery going on with George Springer. He left the game on Tuesday with what was called forearm discomfort and had an MRI, but we haven't seen it. Our new HQ analyst, Tim Cavanaugh, covering the story for playing time today. What's the latest on George Springer? Yeah, count me among those who are confused and sort of waiting with bated breath as a uh, guy with Springer on a couple of rosters here. You know, that's that, that, that MRI seems like uh, it's, a, it's a state secret or something. Uh, no one has really commented on what they saw there, or I'm not even clear. I don't know if you are, PB. I'm not even clear if there's a precipitating injury that caused them to order the MRI. I didn't, you know, I don't know if he felt pain on a throw or if this has just been something that 
he's been managing for a while. Uh, obviously, Springer's health history, you know, especially since he got to the Jays, is somewhat checkered. You know, it took him a long time to to make his debut last year, and uh, you know, his history of DL days does did earn him an, an F health grade from us in the uh, baseball forecaster. So, uh, you know, this is not a guy who has a history of shaking things off quickly. So, uh, yeah, I'm concerned. Not that this is particularly germane or may not be germane, but I had some elbow problems and many years ago, 10 years or 12 years ago or so. And the first thing that happened was I found myself, I was constantly rubbing the top of my forearm and kind of squeezing it because that's, uh, seemed to be help helping, uh, with the pain. And it turned out I had a torn tendon in the elbow. So, and I had to have it surgically fixed. And I noticed for a couple of games before this incident happened with Springer, he was doing that out in the outfield. He'd throw the ball in and then he'd be rubbing the upper part of his forearm and squeezing it and pinching it. And then on the bench, he'd be sitting there and kind of manipulating his right forearm. And it really looked to me exactly like what I was doing. And for that reason, I'm really concerned here that we may have a a serious elbow problem that's going to require surgery. And if, if that's the case, I think he's done for the year. It's not Tommy John. In, in this case, it's the epicondyl tendon on the top, but could be one or the other. Apparently, they both work the same way. Yeah, I have not had that pain, but I know what you took. I've read about what you're talking about. It kind of manifests itself as a burning. Is that right? You know, it's it, yeah, a burning pain is not a bad way to put it, and and an ache most of the rest of the time. Yeah, that's no good at all. So yeah, it, the silence here does seem very ominous. So. Uh, if this is a longer term concern or does lead to surgery, then it would seem like uh, Rhino Tapia is the beneficiary. He started for Springer last night uh, in center field. And, you know, there's not a great bat there, but I think he did steal a base too. There's a little bit of stolen base value. Uh, and obviously he would plug into a very potent lineup. So there's some, uh, you know, there, there's some good context. There will be some good con- contextual reasons to roster Tapia if he ends up being the uh, beneficiary of an extended Springer absence here. But we'll wait and see, and hope that our uh, amateur medical diagnoses here are, are are overblown. Yeah, and it could be that a cortisone shot can help if it's ju- if it is just inflammation of the arm, which can cause a, a similar kind of pain. So it, it is a kind of a wait and see thing. In the meantime, uh, Tapia probably looks like a guy you might want to grab for the short term, especially if you've already got George Springer on your roster and you could handcuff him somehow and you know, ride the Tapia train until George Springer comes back, if he does. <laughs> the Tapia train implies a lot more uh, a lot more speed and smoothness of ride than I think is actually warranted, but I take your point. <laughs> <laughs> All right, the, uh, the Tapia jalopy kind of almost rising. Yeah. All right, Ray, thanks a million for helping us out. Do appreciate it, and we'll talk to you again next week. Awesome. Thank you, PD. Ray Murphy is a co-general manager at Baseball HQ and a columnist at the site, and he covers the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Next up, it's part two of our feature expert interview with Jason Collette from Rotowire and the Sleeper and the Bust podcast, coming to the plate for his second at-bat next on Baseball HQ Radio. But right now I want to remind you of another great article at BaseballHQ.com. In Lineup Outlook, 
Analyst Greg Jewett assesses the batting orders in Miami, Milwaukee, and San Diego, focusing on plate appearance gains for John Birdie, Rowdy Telez, and Jorge Alfaro. And don't miss the next edition of Baseball HQ Radio, another Friday full edition featuring an expert interview with Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus, plus all our other usual great stuff, National and American League news analysis, and our Baseball HQ commentaries. That's Mike Gianella next Friday on another Friday full edition of Baseball HQ Radio. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Jason Collette from Rotowire and the Sleeper and the Bust podcast. Jason, welcome back to part two. All right, let's go. Let's talk about injuries. We talked about them earlier as far as how much they've been affecting our rosters. And you've been posting regularly on Twitter about the increasingly dire situation in Tampa. You're a Tampa guy, follow the team, you're connected to the team in a lot of ways. Their players are falling one by, I was going to say one by one, but it's more like one by three to the IL. What is going on in Tampa with all these injuries and is it something that's team specific, do you think? It's been bad. I uh, tweeted the other night, five of the opening nine hitters from from the opening day lineup are currently on the IL uh, with with Zanino, with Brandon Lau, with Wander Franco, with Kevin Kiermeyer, and Manny Marco. Uh, all five of those guys are now on the IL, uh, and it's it's been bad. With with Mark with um, you know Margot hurt his knee landing trying to make a catch against the wall. Uh, Kiermeyer's been battling a hip issue for a few weeks. Uh, and I, you know, with Kiermaier in particular, I think that comes down to uh, a variety of factors. One, his age. Two, his style of play. Three, the the playing surface of Tropicana Field. Uh, you know, it's it you know, it takes takes a wearing on you, and, and that's where Franco and, and his quad injury that was part of the problem with him as well. Uh, Lau with the stress fracture in the back. I don't know how to explain it. Uh, Zanino and, and the shoulder issue perhaps is just you know the way he swings. Uh, but, you know, playing on artificial surface for half the season uh, is certainly where Longoria talked about it when he was here in Tampa Bay. Uh, and the, the team has attempted to give guys rest, like use the DH. Well, they've never really had a full-time DH. They've just used that DH as a, as a day off from the field um, to try to do that kind of stuff. But it's been just a bunch of it. Um, and, you know, that's why – it's been, it's been frustrating to watch as a fan. I don't know if you can do anything to, I mean, how can you tell a guy not to jump for a ball against the wall and not land awkwardly on your leg? Um, how can you tell Kiermaier, you know, don't go gap to gap and dive for these balls? Um, how do you tell, uh, how do you tell Wander Franco, take it down a level? So it's just like, it's, it's part of the game. It's just you know, every year we see a team get hit by a rash of injuries and in Tampa Bay is, is certainly at the top of the list uh, now. Uh, maybe it makes more of an argument if they ever do get a new stadium that it's got to be real grass uh, with a convertible roof if they stay in the, in the Tampa Bay area. I was going to ask about the field. I've noticed some of that black rubbery stuff, I, I think, when I watch on TV. It looks like when the ball hits the mm-hmm. ground, you see that a little explosion, a little puff of that black rubber stuff, which is an improvement on the old um, sort of indoor-outdoor carpeting on a parking lot kind of deal. But is it still uh, not as good as grass? Because I, I know that some people proselytize that the uh, rubber infill uh, individual bla- blades of, uh, of so-called grass is a big improvement over the old stuff and is almost as good as grass as far as injury prevention. I don't know anything about it. Do you? 
Yeah, it's a massive improvement over the old stuff that from somebody who's been down on, on the field surface there before they put in the new sur- – it's a night and day improvement. Uh, but I don't know if we'll find a player that would say, I prefer the artificial stuff over the natural stuff. I, I just don't think we'll have a player that does that. But, yeah, there are rubber pellets, and it's usually put on a foundation – uh, of, you know, they'll put some couple layers of surface, much like when you're rolling indoor carpet, you know, you've got your, you've got your padding and different because, you know, beneath all that's concrete. I have seen the exposed floor in that place. It's concrete. Uh, and so yeah, there's, you can add all the layers and what, but I don't think we'll ever find a player that says, oh, I love playing an artificial surface. Now, maybe a defense, an infielder who can bounce throws over to first base. They may love that. But at the end of the day, uh, I'm sure that the, 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 playing on artificial turf for half a year. I've never seen, you know, maybe it's a study, somebody who focuses on injuries. I would love to see the team injury rate on player on teams that have their home games on artificial surface versus natural grass and see if there's any kind of difference. Jason, how do you think the steady increase in injuries affects how we as fantasy managers should be thinking about our own league rules as far as injured lists, reserve lists, and those kinds of things? You know, it's a, it's a tough it's a tough balance uh, with that. Like I compare, since I play, you know, NFBC, there is no injury list. Uh, and so if you are in one of the you know, uh, online championship, main event, whatever, you have seven bench spots and that's your bench. That's it. Uh, if so injuries, if you want to uh, hold an injury, you can do that. Uh, you know, I don't think they're ever going to change that. It would be nice if you had at least, at least like three roster spots where you could put some injury guys uh with that and like and i i know understand the delicate balance between okay if we're allowed like in tout where we have unlimited il spots and then you look at the free agent list you know like man there's nobody here well it's like you can't even spec on a guy coming back from an injury because somebody gets injured just moving to your il so it's like a balance of what do you want do you want a deeper free agent pool where you can take a spec on a guy being injured and coming back soon? Or do you want to let un, un, unlimited IL where you can just keep throwing guys on your roster? Like at one point last year in town, I think I had nine guys in my IL because I could um, with that. So I'd like to see some kind of healthy balance. Unlimited IL, I'm not a fan of, uh, but I'm also really not a fan of no IL spots. I would like to see NFBC adapt the rules to go to a 30-man roster with three injury spots. Yeah, it seems to be an argument based on league depth, right? Uh, that if you're in a 10-team mixer, you don't really need to worry about it because there's a million guys available on the wire. But in uh, the 12-team league, the American League league like we play in in tout, the free agent pool is pretty much empty at the start of the year anyway. Um, what about the uh, idea for a really deep league like that, that there's no reserve list and just IL? Sorry, the question cut off there. There was one of that pauses I was talking about. You said, what about the idea of a really deep league and then I lost you? What about in a deep league where we could maybe have something like no reserve list, no just optional reserves where you can just move guys in and out of your roster. You can have an IL, but you can't hide players on your reserve list. Maybe a farm list, but not a reserve list that allows active players just to keep the, the free agent pool a little bigger and more usable. Yeah, that's an interesting idea as well. I know I don't recall which friend of mine. I have a friend who plays in a league where there are no reserve spots, but you can keep an injured guy. Uh, they have they have some limits, so there is at least one league out there that does that. Uh, but it's certainly something. That, you know, maybe this is a topic to have in your your home league winter meetings to talk about how to deal with this because uh, you know injuries are here to stay. Uh, the league did go to twenty eight man. You know, did adjust the roster size a little bit to help. But you know, recently they said, hey. You got to go back to 13 pitchers and 13 hitters, no more imbalanced rosters. 
Uh, and so you know, one of these things, one of the many things you should talk about. So now that the league is 26, is there a reason why we still need to have 23-man rosters in fantasy? Can we go to 25? Uh, you know, in, in one of my home leagues, we added a 10th pitcher. Uh, uh, this year, instead of having just nine, we went ahead and added a 10th pitcher because of how many pitching stats. And we talked about this at, at First Pitch Arizona this past uh, winter about just how many stats were being left on the table on the pitching side of the ledger because we were sticking with nine man rosters when the league was going with 13 pitchers uh, and and all this all the saves and all the wins and then whatnot that were being left on the free agent pile um, because enough pitchers weren't being rostered. Uh, so we went to 10 pitchers in that league. Uh, and I'd like to see some, I'd like to see the fantasy industry as a whole, get away from just a 23 man roster. Go ahead and go to 25. The league's playing with 26 to 28 guys. And we're still holding on to the 20, the 14, nine format that's been around forever. The original design of the game had about 75% of hitters rostered right after the draft and 75% of pitchers. And now I think the ratio is like 90% of the hitters are even more and 60% of the pitchers. And I think that balance needs to be readdressed you're correct uh, in the in those old leagues way back when when they were still based on the original rotisserie league there was no reserve list the reserve list was something that got added on later i played in a league that mm-hmm. was based on those rules and we had unlimited injured list if you had lost a guy to an injury then you put him on the injured list but as soon as he was activated you had to activate him by that sunday or you lost him right even though it was a fairly uh, deep league like uh, tout was it of course it's much deeper on the hitter side now because there's so many fewer uh, hitters in Major League Baseball on each team. But I think that uh, we also had a, a, a farm list, which is a whole separate thing. So you could actually actively manage your farm list, but there was no reserves. And I think it's a possible solution. I think roster restructuring needs to be considered. There's lots of things like that going on. I heard you guys uh, talking about some big name guys who are injured lately when I was listening to The Sleeper and the Bust. Uh, what are you expecting as a return date for Manny Machado, given what we've heard in the last couple of days? Yeah, it's it's crazy. They still haven't IL'd him. They can always backdate it. Uh, it's just unless he's Superman, I don't know how he's going to be able to take the field in the foreseeable future uh, with the way that injury was uh, way it happened. I mean, that was a pretty nasty thing. I think all of us listening at one point in our life have sprained our ankle, uh, and you know how tender it can be. But that was more than just a sprain. I mean, that was. I'm surprised what they call it grade three uh, and as a lot of this joked, you know, a sprain is a tear uh, and how much of that do they want? And and the only way that stuff heals is rest, rehab or surgery. Uh, And just having him on, you know, having him day to day is not going to fix that. And I, again, I don't expect him. I expect like rolling into the weekend. If they have one more team injury, they're going to need that roster spot. Uh, And so they probably just backdate him to the IL, but I would be surprised. Uh, if he is not on a backdated IL uh, stint here uh, and they just try to give him enough time to recover from that, potentially through the all-star break. Um, if he comes back from it, wow. Uh, but if he comes back from it, I also don't expect him to be running as much as he was because he was uh, quite a nice surprise for stolen bases. And I, I can't imagine in the, uh, for the next few weeks uh, that he's going to be on the move much because that's still going to be a very tender joint. At least he's playing third base now instead of shortstop, so he doesn't have he want he doesn't have the same issues. But again, that's also his. I believe it was his right foot, so that's also his push foot as he's going to his glove side. Again, I, I don't know how they don't put him on the IL. I would love to be wrong. I have him in three leagues. It's hurting me, uh, but I, I can't imagine how he's not going to hit the IL. 
I have him in one league in my TGFBI league, and yeah, it definitely hurts. He was having a kind of a MVP type of season, not just for fantasy purposes, but in general. But he was, the story I heard anyways, and you can correct me if you've heard more since, he was seen walking normally like just uh, yesterday or the day before after he hurt his ankle with no boot or anything like that, walking around the locker room and me, like seemingly acting like nothing was wrong at all. So let's ex- let's expect that he is going to miss some extended time because I, I hate to say it, but I believe that you're right. There's something more here and it, it's, it's a poor management of risk by San Diego to throw him out there because they think everything's going to be okay. I mean, at a certain point, we have to trust that they know what they're doing, but where's the playing time opportunity if Machado does end up missing extended time? Uh, If he does uh, miss extended time, then I would have to assume uh, CJ Abrams is is currently the guy up uh, and making the playing time. So I would have to assume it's, it's, gotta be him they don't really have many other options to to move around uh, to say hey you know here you can do this so they did you know recently had called up Mazzara to add to the roster but they don't really have another good option Abrams was it that's really what they have uh, to the organization and say hey let's go get this guy um, that's it I don't see another good answer internally what do you know about the other huge name on the hitter injury newswire Mookie Betts in LA uh, honestly, don't know much. I know that it was a uh, rib stress fracture uh, that they put him on. And and I just wanted, like, I'll take the L on this one because I did not like him coming into the season. Uh, you know, you look at the batted, it looked at a lot of metrics uh, for his batted ball, batted ball profile coming into the season. And, and there was concerns because I saw him being taken in the second round. And I was like, I, I can't, I'm not there. I can't do that. And this is why. Uh, and the first two weeks of the season, it was like, Hey, look, maybe I was right. And then since then, he's been like, yeah, you were dead wrong. Uh, and then he got hurt. Uh, but that's a, that's a concern there because you'll recall he struggled with the, the hip injury last year. Um, that, certainly bought, that certainly hurt his numbers until he had a cortisone shot later in the year. And that really helped him close out the year well. Uh, so he's saying he'll be able to bounce back from this uh, and, and miss the minimum time and not be out too long. Uh, with this, but we'll have to see what that's gonna, that's going to look like. I can't recall another guy recently who's had a similar injury and what the impact's been like that to him. But I always get concerned when a pitcher has an injury to their core sex, uh, a pitcher, a hitter, especially one that hits with uh, power like Betts can uh, with a core muscle, uh, a core area injury rather, not a muscle, uh, but that's still a core injury, and that's going to take some time to get back from. I think the injury is actually a cracked rib. He ran into another fielder. I think he ran into Cody Bellinger chasing a ball or something like that. And it's actually cracked. So I agree with you. Core injuries are bad, especially for a smaller, more athletic guy like Betts, who generates a ton of torque with his, uh, the rotation of his trunk through his abdomen and chest and man alive, that's got to hurt. I've had like just rib cartilage sort of problems and it really hurts. You can't even breathe. Same here. I've had that twice. And you know, right? I mean, it doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal, but even breathing heavily can be painful. And, you know, chasing after a fly ball, you get a sprint going, and all of a sudden, even if nothing happens, then you got to throw the ball back in. And if if you have to throw it in with some vigor, that's two attacks on a sore rib, the heavy breathing and the and the rotational mo- motion of the, of the throw. This is not a, a minor thing for an outfielder. Indeed. On the pitcher side, Max Scherzer is supposed to be on the way back. Jason, what do you think the Mets are going to do about the rotation once Scherzer returns? 
Well, I, I almost believe this question is going to answer itself because Carlos Carrasco left the game hurt yesterday. So it, it's almost like this is going to answer its, it, it, itself. But, you know, they've been t- really kind of going, um, you know, Johnny bullpen with one of their uh, with one of their outings uh, on there. But this may answer itself where Carrasco and, and Scherzer could just change spots because uh, I know that Carrasco, I didn't see what the update was, but he left in the middle of the game yesterday and uh, with his track record. Yeah, could see him going the IL, and they're talking about Scherzer possibly pitching this Sunday, but it sounds like definitely next week. Sunday would definitely line up that Carrasco. Carrasco left his start. He had lower back tightness, they call it, which might be more precautionary than an actual injury, but it doesn't sound good. He's had injury problems and health problems in the past, so we'll have to monitor that for sure. I was wondering if everybody was there, whether at some point they might look at a six-man rotation. There I think clearly looking at uh, being into the playoffs and they're going to have to have a lot more innings from their pitchers this year and a six-man rotation might work. But there are two issues, and I'm curious what you think. One of them is Max Scherzer might just say, no, I'm not going every six days. I'm going every five days. I don't care what you do with the rest of them, but don't mess with don't mess with me in that regard. Do you think that Scherzer might put up a fuss if there was a, a move to a six-man rotation, assuming they had six starters? I could see that, you know, given he's certainly earned the right. If he wants to pitch every five days, we know that pitchers are a creature of habit. And if they're used to doing certain things, certain ways, they don't want that changed. Uh, And so I could certainly see that. And Jacob deGrom faced live hitting, I think, for the first time in a while earlier this week. So there's that possibility of him coming back as well. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Jason Collette from Rotowire and the Sleeper and the Bust Pod. And on the June 20th, Swooning in June, Sleeper in the Bust podcast. Jason, you told your co- colleagues, Paul Sporer and Justin Mason, about a bit of good luck you had with Pittsburgh call-up sensation O'Neill Cruz. What went so well for you? Uh, yeah, I picked him up uh, three, four weeks ago for $3 uh, in my one of my NFBC leagues. Uh, and so what that would serve as a reminder, always check your free agent, always check your free agent list to see what's out there. Use the watch list feature on whatever site you're using to see what's out there. But somebody had drafted, and that's the rule in NFBC for those who don't know, rookies aren't eligible for fab until they're put into the system unless they were drafted and then they were cut. So somebody drafted O'Neill Cruz in one of my leagues and then had cut him because they ran out of patience with the Pirates not calling him up. So about a month ago, I'm sitting there and I didn't like uh, at the time, my roster was healthy, and I didn't have like, hey, and look at this. I'm like, look, he's there. When he comes up, he's going to be, you know, Fabapalooza this weekend with O'Neill Cruz is going to be nuts. Uh, so I'm like, I can get him. I'll throw in a couple dollars, see what happens. And the Pirates have got to be calling him up here at some point. So I put three dollars, and it was an uncontested bid. And so like, I saved myself. I probably saved myself. 250 to 300 fab dollars because that's I expect him to go for that in some leagues um, this this weekend and I was able to immediately put him in my lineup because I lost Jorge Polanco to an injury so I was like switch uh, but I tell you I was about a week if the Pirates had not called him up I don't know if I was gonna be able to hold him much longer because I had six guys on my roster that were IL uh, when I had to move Polanco so it's, luckily it was a nice position switch like put Cruz in there but uh, I had five guys on IL at that point because a lot of them have been hurt in the last week. 
Uh, and then Polanco went down and you know, I would have, if Cruz had not called up, I don't know how I could have kept him. So the timing was perfect uh, in that regard, but it's just a reminder to continue to check your, uh, your waiver wire to see who's been dumped and then mark that guy. They're like, hey, wow, that guy got dumped. Just mark him. That way you can keep an eye on him and not forget about him. I bet the guy who dropped him ran into injury trouble as well. Uh, the Rays recently recalled Josh Lowe, a Tampa guy. What do you expect from him the rest of the season? I would say this about anybody who the Rays call up from Durham to Tropicana Field, uh, making an airline joke, the luggage is getting, the, the the hit skill is getting packed in their luggage and is not making it to Tampa Bay. Uh, all of these guys have hit well in Durham. Yes, Durham is a very good park for hitting. Uh, but all of these guys have hit well. Bruhan was hitting well in Durham. Taylor Walls was hitting well in Durham. Josh Lowe has hit well in Durham. None of these guys have hit in the major league level yet. Uh, and Josh Lowe is playing center field right now, depending on some of the matchups. Um, and so, you know, the athleticism's there. Uh, and we were talking about stolen bases earlier. That's something him, if he could just get on base, uh, he has been thrown out one time in the last two years. And he, I think he's 29 of 30 in his, in his stolen base attempts between the majors and the minors. So he's very good at that skill. The problem is at the major level, he's not getting on base, so he can't use it. Uh, but defensively, he's good. He's got a very similar swing to his older brother, Nathaniel. Um, similar challenges, too. Struggles with velocity high, can hit the ball low. But so far, I mean, in this Yankee series, he's had to face Montgomery, Cole, and Cortez. Uh, and that's been rough. So now he's got Pittsburgh coming in. He could have a really nice series against Pittsburgh uh, and get back on track. So it's just really tough for a guy to get called back up and be like, okay, go face arguably the best rotation in baseball right now uh, and see which, and particularly two lefties or lefty. So uh, it should be a better situation against Pittsburgh. Um, he's certainly going to get the playing time because they're out of options. I mean, they had to call up Jonathan Aranda and Luke Rayleigh uh, to get to the roster. Neither of those guys have yet even seen a bat in the game last I checked um, because of the pitching matchups. Staying in the Rays, uh, I have G-Man Choi on my team in our Tout American League League, and you guys, when you were talking, included him in your swooning in June contingent, a 286 batting average, 381 on base this year, even a little higher than that when you look at June alone. Uh, what was your point about Choi's roster ability? Uh, it depends on matchups because Choi does not play against lefties unless they have no options. Like he had to play in this series he's faced uh, I want to say he faced Cortez. I know he's definitely in there yesterday against uh, Montgomery uh, because they just have options uh, about who to use. But he is pretty much a facing right-handed pitching only option. And he's good at that. Uh, and that's the thing about him is he works counts. He he will very rarely go up there swinging early in the count. He's got a very, very good control of the strike zone. When he does strike out, it's typically in two-strike protection mode type of thing. But he is not out there chasing pitches. And so he'll work counts. Um, and and draw his walks uh, with that. And, and so the fact that they don't expose him to lefties, which have given him trouble forever, uh, is why his numbers are as good as they are. So if you're using him in a weekly league uh, that only allows you to do weekly moves, then you got to see what the righty-lefty matchups. So if you look at him um, in NFBC where you can do Monday-Friday moves, it's like he was a good bench in the first scoring period because of the Cortez and Montgomery matchup. But this weekend, three righties against Pittsburgh. So he's a really good start in that week. So you've got the ability, depending on your league rules, uh, do that. But he is absolutely somebody you would stream depending on the, the handiness of the starting pitcher. After I heard you guys talking about Choi, I went and looked at his Fangraphs page and I noticed what looks like a weird pattern. Uh, 
March, April, 21% walk rate, 32% Ks. That's a very high walk rate and a pretty high K rate. Then in May, he loses half the walks. They fall all the way down to 10, 11%, but he keeps striking out 32% and he has a bad month. Then in June so far, the walks have stayed down, but the Ks have also dropped from the 32% level back down to around 20. What's going on with him as far as walking and striking out, do you think? Well, he was trying to play through some uh, lower half injury uh, during that strikeout phase. And so when he's, you know, without his lower half, he's just not much. But like I said, he works his way into deep counts. Uh, and that's going to, there's, there's benefits to that. If you're in a deep count, you can draw a walk or you can strike out uh, with that. And if you look at his strikeouts, I would bet you he has more strikeouts looking than he does swinging. Uh, because he is, like I said, he's got a really good command of the strike zone. And I would bet you know, he's like getting Julio Rodriguez-like treatment where a lot of the strikeouts are on the fringes of the strike zone. Uh, because, again, he's he's arguably he and Yandy Diaz are the two most disciplined hitters on the team when it, when it comes to com- commanding the strike zone. And I think it's guys like that who are going to really benefit from robo-ums because uh, there was a – Big story, a big hullabaloo earlier this season. You probably remember Julio Rodriguez was getting just yep. jobbed on all those uh, striking out on balls type of problems. And I think a lot of those close pitches, I think umpires are just guessing, frankly, because it's an impossible task. I'm not saying they're bad people or lazy or anything like that. I, I, I umpired myself for a long time, and I'll freely admit when it gets, you know, you're talking about a ball that's moving 15 inches horizontally and 10 inches vertically and trying to determine whether it passed through an invisible, you know, five-sided prism that's floating in the air at various heights, I don't even know how anybody thinks it's possible to do this job without tossing a coin, but leaving it at that. You guys talked about Jack Suwinski in Pittsburgh, a hot power guy in June with six homers, 11 homers are uh, all together with 154 at-bats, and a 667 slugging percentage, obviously on a lot of pickup lists, but still only 77% rostered in TGFBI. And you and your podmates sounded some cautionary notes. What's the source of reticence about grabbing a guy with all this power? I mean, uh, with the power comes the strikeouts. Uh, and to me, it reminded me, what it reminded me of was the the run that Yossi Susugo went on last year for the Pirates. I think it was the month of August, or maybe it was 20. There was that run that Susugo had for the Pirates where he was just absolutely on fire. Uh, and then just as everybody is like, okay, this is, Susugo, this is the Susugo that we thought we were getting from Japan when he came over, he absolutely went in the tank. And that's my fear was, was Suwinski is, you know, he's gotten this hot. We may have missed a goodness, but even Paul talked about that, you know, aside of the three home run game the other day, he had been rather wretched in between the home runs between that. I think he has six home runs in June, but everything else around that had been a bunch of nothing. Uh, and so if like, if you're looking for power and trying to do that, then that sure. But it just reminded me of, it reminds me so much of that run Susugo went on when he had eight home runs, I think 23 RBIs over a three week period. Uh, and then, couldn't even come close to that the rest of the way. So the risk profile is certainly there, but right now he's playing. And, you know, if you can take, if you, if you're in need of power, you can't, you know, beggars can't be choosers. Uh, and so you could take your run because he's going to be out there playing, but I understand you should have, look at him as a week by week guy uh, and not to say, Oh, like I'm, I'm all in, this is my new solution. You know, be prepared to have a backup if you're going to go after Zawinski this weekend. 
I went and looked at his minor leagues uh, record because I was curious if he was just paying some kind of major league penalty, and he really isn't. You know, I, I've thirty percent, twenty eight percent, twenty eight percent. Got it down to twenty five last year in Double A, and this year thirty one point two. So he's always struck out a lot. If there's any big difference, that the is that he was walking a lot more in the minors than he is now, up around 13, 14% all the way down to nine. And that's not a really uh, positive sign that augurs well for his ability to avoid striking out. But it's Pittsburgh. They're going to continue to play these guys. So, and that's kind of a good thing. Uh, again, when you're looking at fantasy playing time is, is, is key and he's going to get his opportunity to fail. And once he does, they'll, they'll move on. He'll have a longer leash than he would on a, on a, you know, like a St. Louis, another team like that, that's in contention. Yeah, I was thinking, move on to what if you're Pittsburgh? <laughs> kind of that's a, a bit of their problem like we have on our fantasy roster sometimes. Yeah, it's easy to say get rid of Swinsky, but then you look at the free agent pool and you think, and do what? You know, you're kind of stuck with yeah. him at a certain point. Uh, right at the end of the show, you guys talked about the possibility of Kansas City trading their center fielder, Michael A. Taylor, and it sounded like you guys thought it was a pretty good possibility. What's the story there, and do you have any ideas where he might end up? Yeah, we were talking about it in the context of uh, the Dodgers looking for a right-handed outfield bat, and then they went out and got Trace Thompson right after that. So it's like, eh. but you know, Michael uh, Michael A. Taylor has a four and a half million dollar option for next year. Uh, no, he's got a guaranteed deal. He's in the first year of a two-year deal, but it's cheap. But you know, for a team like Kansas City, who's obviously not playing for this year, Taylor can play all three outfield positions in a pinch, but he can definitely play two of the three Uh, and he's cheap and he has some speed. And so it's like a contending team looking for some outfield depth. He makes a ton of sense for Kansas city to be like, Hey, you know, give me some upside arm, give me something upside. We'll give you Taylor and you can have some nice depth on your bench. Uh, And so, and one of the reasons why we were talking about that is because like Ben Intendi, Taylor's not running on the um, for Kansas City this year. And I know last year his success rate was about 67, 70%. So uh, putting in that in context of what we were talking about earlier. So I think that's part of the problem here is that because he was having some struggles last year, Matheny's like, sorry, you're just not going to run. So uh, last I checked, Taylor had like two attempts on the season. He wasn't running much. So I'm looking at a guy who has historically run. And if he changed his teams, perhaps there's an opportunity for him to run more. Um, for that, so I'm, you know, I would, I'd be surprised if Kansas City wanted to stay on Michael A. Taylor and say, oh, we want him back next year. I mean, this is the team again that's got Vinny Pas- Pasquiano just wasting in, in Omaha because they're they're trying to play Carlos Santana into trade value uh, instead of just saying, okay, fine, you know, go, we'll just DFA you and bring up uh, bring up Italian beef as as he's nicknamed. Um, or no, I'm sorry, Italian breakfast. He's Italian yeah. breakfast naturally. He's Italian beef with with Clay Link and James Anderson. So, uh, but yeah, it's like I don't know what they're trying to do. It's to, now now that O'Neill Cruz has been promoted. Now the frustrating part is, come on, Kansas City, just do it already. So they they certainly have not only. Uh... Vinny Italian breakfast, but they've got lots of options at first base to replace Carlos Santana. And they have a lot of guys who really have seemed to have accomplished everything they need to at AAA. And so I kind of had to giggle when you said Kansas City could trade Taylor for prospects. And I think, yeah, so they can leave him on the farm for four years too long and uh, until the the 
optimum time has passed. So uh, Kansas City, what are you going to do about Kansas City, I guess? Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Jason Collette from Rotowire and the Sleeper in the Bust Pod. And Jason, you've been on the show lots. You know we like to talk about the boons and banes at the end of our discussions. Uh, let's start with your boons. These are players who you think look like good value for the rest of the year in the American League. Who's a batter you think could be a boon? Uh, so I'm looking at Trey Mancini uh, because getting into the the, the 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 time of season, it's trade. And Mancini is under a mutual option with Baltimore next year. Uh, and so that would be his final year. And Mancini, as much as he loves Baltimore and much as Baltimore loves him, may decide, you know what? Uh, I'd like to I'd like to try something else. Uh, and so I'm looking at Mancini as somebody who could uh, he's hitting well over the past 30 days. You have 256 slugging 488 and that's in that ballpark. Uh, if I'm Baltimore, I have to at least consider offers for Mancini because um, he could be a, a nice contributor to a contending club and getting him out of Camden and into a better hitting situation could really boost his numbers. In the National League, who's a boon batter? Uh, I'm, Dylan Carlson's been on fire of late. Uh, you know, we talked about the success of St. Louis, but he has a 21% walk rate. Um, he's on base at a 409 clip, slugging at a 514 clip. Uh, really like the talent and, and want to see what he can do if he can stay on the field uh, moving forward. But his production has been quietly nice here over the past month since coming back from injury. And I want to see uh, what he can do the rest of the way. Over to the mound, who's an American League pitcher you think could be a boon? Uh, Sonny Gray uh, has really looked good since coming back from his injury. Uh, you know, was one two of his starts. Buck sixty four ERA is walking nobody, uh, and Minnesota has uh, been playing good. Uh, good behind him. Uh, yesterday's game it was not his, but that eleven ten uh, track meet against the uh, against the Guardians was a, a little surprising to see. But Sonny Gray has pitched really well since coming back from his injury, and uh, you know, I really liked him coming into the season. Uh, and the injury was ill-timed, but since he come back, he didn't, he hasn't skipped a beat. I don't know if it's just me, but have you so, uh, seen a lot of those kind of 11-9-10-8 kind of games recently, especially after the way the season started? Yeah, it's it's definitely happening a, a bit more now, and, and I don't know if it's the adjustment. I want to take, you know, this has been the first week that teams had to go down to 13 pitchers instead of having the extra, you know, instead of having 14 or whatever. And uh, like I'm seeing a lot of pitchers now working back to back to back games like in this in this Tampa Bay Yankees series. Uh, I think Jason Adam worked all three of the games. Uh, you rarely see that from teams where they're using that same reliever in three straight games. But some of these teams uh, with with the way the schedule's been uh, and whatnot, uh, team bullpen usage seems to be out of whack. Uh, and some of these teams are going into these. And that's, the, that's one of the other side effects of the, the Johnny bullpen starts where like, okay, you're going to have a bullpen day, but if one of these games shortly after that bullpen day gets to be a, your starter can't go on and all of a sudden you've got that. And then you don't have the, the flexibility of just optioning guys up and down as frequently as you want to, as we previously had, because you have the limitations on how many times guys can be sent down. So some of these guys have to stay up. You, you can't just like, Oh, this guy pitched three innings. I'm going to farm him down, pull up the next guy. Well, you have limits on how many times you got to do that. So right now we're seeing some atypical bullpen usage, uh, and it's reflecting in the box scores. How about a National League pitcher who could be a boon? So I'm sticking with the trade theme. I'm looking at Mitch Keller from the Pirates. Uh, Mitch Keller has had a two seven three ERA over his last six starts, uh, and with starting pitching uh, in demand everywhere around the league, 
Pittsburgh has to seriously consider listening to trade offers for Mitch Keller. I know they have a terrible track record of trading away pitchers who then go on to be great elsewhere. Uh, but Mitch Keller, after I mean, he had a horrendous start to the season, and he's been pitching really well of late. Uh, but it's you know mostly for not for a for a terrible team, uh, and so they have to seriously consider listening, and that would be a, a, a great upgrade for his uh, for his wins if he can get moved to a team uh, that's in contention. Which almost any team's better than Pittsburgh, that's for sure. And it's an interesting point, Jason, to look for guys who might get traded into better situations, especially at this time of year. Uh, let's go over to the Baines, again, starting in the American League with a batter who could be a disappointment the rest of the year. So we mentioned him earlier, but Jorge Mateo, yeah, the steals. He's had six steals over the past 30 days, but it's come at the cost of a 173 batting average and a 40% strikeout rate. You know, I get it. Like, if you took a spec on him early in the season, you'd love the stolen bases. But if you can move those stolen bases, move them. Uh, it's like eventually even – he's out of options. So Baltimore can – you know, and they obviously can afford to play him, but he's out of options. He, yes, he's a good defender, but it's it's costing you severely in other areas. And if you can move the steals for other uh, – for a more well-rounded offensive player – uh, please do it because it's going to be tough for even Baltimore to keep him out there at that strikeout rate. In the National League, who's a batter who could be a bane? Also mentioned him earlier because he's starting to show the same trains, uh, the trends. But Jazz Chisholm Jr. Uh, you know, last year again he got off to that booming start out of the season, got hurt, and then came back. It was not good. But over the past thirty days, he's hitting a buck seventy nine with a thirty three percent strikeout rate. So he's kind of showing that that June swoon again this year, and that's concerning as somebody who again has multiple shares of him in leagues. Um, but he's doing exactly what he did this time last year, which is not great. Back to the mound, an American League pitcher who could be a bane. Uh, so I have to include one Tampa Bay guy here, and I'm looking at Jeffrey Springs, not because of how well he's pitched, but because he's going to have a workload issue here. Um, you know, Springs has been a full-time reliever, got pushed into the rotation, um, and eventually he's got to come out of the rotation. I don't see how Tampa Bay is going to allow him to stay in the rotation moving forward. You know, Boz just came back. Rasmussen will be back off the aisle um, here soon. And then Luis Patino is close to coming back. So as Patino and Rasmussen come back, even Rasmussen's going to have a limit on how much he's going to pitch this year. But Jeffrey Springs has been great here over the past month or so, um, but he's going to hit a wall. Uh, and so I'm concerned about him in the second half of the season because I can see them peeling back his workload to conserve him for the long run. And finally, how about a National League pitcher who could be a bane? Uh, I don't know what to do with Eric Lauer anymore. Eric Lauer was really good uh, in April, early May, and then Eric Lauer has been incredibly hittable um, here over the past month. I, I believe he's got the worst ERA of all pitchers here. It just—it's been tough. I don't know what what has changed with him. It's like I want to dive into it because he looked like he was going to be quite defined, um, but then right now he is like waiver wire fodder. Just I, I can't have him on my team. Uh, with that. And I'm just concerned how a guy went from pitching so well to pitching so poorly here as he has over his last five starts and, and just been home run rates been ridiculous. So maybe simple regression puts him back into play, but I got to take a deeper look at Eric Lauer and see what's going on. But right now it is really tough to recommend keeping him in your lineup. Jason Collette's Boone's Trey Mancini of Baltimore, Dylan Carlson of St. Louis, Sonny Gray of Minnesota, Mitch Keller of Pittsburgh. His Baines, Jorge Mateo of Baltimore, Jazz Chisholm in Miami, Jeffrey Springs of Tampa, and Eric Lauer of Milwaukee. Jason, tell our listeners where they can keep up with your work. So uh, you can find me on Twitter at Jason Collette. Uh, the Collette Calls column at Rotowire uh, runs weekly. 
you know, this week we talked about the uh, the steals, and uh, next week's article will run um, probably by Wednesday. Uh, so usually we'll look for it in the middle of the week, uh, topic to be determined. Uh, but that's where you can find me these days. And we should mention uh, Jason Collette, all one word at Twitter with two L's and two T's. Otherwise, I think you end up with some Canadian country music singer or, or somebody like that, that. I don't know what he knows about baseball. But, or an uh, Australian equestrian. Apparently, there is a horse jockey in Australia named Jason Collette because I got hit with some tweets over the weekend about it. And somebody was like, that's not the bloke you're looking for. Uh, and <laughs> so, yeah. So, you know, at 6'4", 210, I'm a little, I'm a little too large to be a <laughs> horse jockey. I was going to say, Jason, uh, this was a lot of fun. We had a ton of technical problems behind the scenes here. Uh, I lost internet. Uh, Jason was losing Google Meets. It was quite a, quite a chore. But in the end, I think it was worth it. Great information, great takes, great analysis, Jason. I appreciate it. We'll talk to you again soon. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, sorry that Google Meets has been such a pain in the butt for me, but uh you know, hopefully it'll get better. Uh, maybe I need to switch machines or, or try something else out. If anybody else has been having Google Meets troubles listening to this, please reach out. And let me know what you did to resolve it because it's been about a three-week a three-week pain point uh, professionally uh, for, for, for doing fantasy stuff and for uh, my day job. And it's just really getting annoying. <laughs> so if you know how to fix it, let me know. And, of course, we got to feel sorry for Google. They're a little short on funds. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> All right, thanks, Jason. See you soon. All right, take care. Thank you. Jason Collette writes for Rotowire and podcasts on The Sleeper and the Bust. Quick break here, then we're back with our HQ commentaries, the frequent flyer and extra innings coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. But one more item from the Baseball HQ site that I wanted to mention is our daily call-ups articles. In this one, our scouting team checks out all the recent arrivals, including O'Neill Cruz, Lennon Sosa, uh, whom Ray and I discussed, Jeter Downs, Riley Green, and Leover Peguero, another top Pittsburgh shortstop prospect. That and the other items are only a few of literally dozens of great articles, reports, and commentaries you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. Not only articles, but tools like player projections, depth charts, surgers and faders, and other leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. When you add it up, you get expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. First off, Stengel was to me, one of the more misunderstood figures in baseball because of his time with the Mets and because he understood what his role was and his role was to entertain the media. And, and I think uh, his baseball knowledge and his, his general acumen was really lost in a lot of that caricature. Okay? He became a caricature uh, of himself. And uh, for the players, though, it was interesting. You know, He'd get you in spring training every year and he'd had the same routine. I mean, with the Mets, I mean, he really started with the basics. I mean, you know, he went over to the bag and he reached in there and he pulled out a ball and he said, this is a baseball. That's where we started. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. PB here. Time now for our regular commentaries. My extra innings comment is coming up. And leading off, it's the Frequent Flyer, a commentary on players who might be available in your free agent pool and who have the potential to get enough playing time and production to make them worth a spot on your roster. Here with a look at Arizona outfielder Stone Garrett is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. 
When it comes to hitting, 26-year-old Arizona Diamondbacks outfielder Stone Garrett is all business. I would read the Wall Street Journal business and finance section every day after a 1 p.m. GCL game. The Sugarland, Texas native was quoted as saying in a May 24, 2022 Nevada Sportsnet article by Shannon Kelly, Real estate just kept popping up, so I looked into getting my license, got my license, and did pretty well in the offseason for myself, Garrett continued. The article further describes how after Garrett's minor league contract with the Marlins was not renewed, a message on Garrett's real estate LinkedIn page connecting him with the Diamondbacks changed his life and gave him another shot in baseball. Now he's also connecting with baseballs, batting 303 with 18 home runs and 14 steals plus an OPS on base plus slugging percentage north of 1,000. Named as the April 2022 Pacific Coast League Player of the Month after batting 355 with six home runs and three steals, Garrett hasn't looked back since. His 18 home runs obviously ranks near the top of the Pacific Coast League leaderboard. Nevertheless, when we look back, we can see that Garrett has never batted above 277 for a full season, perhaps suggesting regression based upon rule number two of Todd Zola's Rules of Regression, found on page 22 of Baseball HQ's 2022 Baseball Forecaster, whereby, according to Todd, the most accurate forecast is often just a regression to the player's career average. That's why 26-year-old Arizona Diamondbacks outfielder Stone Garrett, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth the flyer if he is still available in your league. So yes, perhaps Garrett's 302 batting average in 2022 and his 342 batting average on balls in play in 2022 are well above his 253 and 324 career averages respectively, signaling possible regression this season. But regression doesn't punch a time clock, according to Todd Zola's rules. In other words, perhaps some of Garrett's other possible leading indicators appear to point in the opposite direction, towards progression, or progress, a breakout. For example, Garrett is currently seeing almost four pitches per plate appearance in 2022, up from 3.6, where our research on page 30 of the Baseball Forecaster shows that batters who work deeper into the count pitches per plate appearance, tend to display more power relative to their linear weighted power index, perhaps allowing you too to display more power relative to your league by adding rock-solid 26-year-old Arizona Diamondbacks outfielder Stone Garrett as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for extra innings, my comment on baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I'd like to talk about some feel-good stories in a week when we could use some feel-good in our lives. The first story is something I touched on with Nick earlier. The Brewers released longtime outfielder Lorenzo Cain this week, and they did it in a way that invites a little round of applause. The Brewers hadn't been playing Kane and clearly didn't intend to give him any playing time down the road. He was hitting just 179 with a 667 OPS, a single home run, 17 runs scored, 7 RBIs, and just 2 stolen bases. The thing is, Kane last played on Thursday, June 16th, and knowing they weren't going to let him play anymore, the Brewers could have executed his release on Friday, June 17th. 
They didn't. They waited until Tuesday, June 21st, because that was the day Lorenzo Cain hit 10 years of credited service time. And that small consideration, a couple of days, means Cain is now fully vested in the Major League Player Pension Fund. He'll be eligible for a full Major League Player's pension. It can reach more than $200,000 a year, depending on the age of the player when he decides to start collecting it. Now, I know what some people are going to say. It didn't cost Milwaukee anything to do that, except for the roster spot for a couple of days. I know that Lorenzo Cain's probably a multimillionaire 10 times over, and he probably doesn't need the money. It doesn't matter. It was just a nice thing to do, buy a ball club for a veteran player. The second story is about Jock Peterson. You remember Jock Peterson, the guy who received the slap heard round the world, or at least the one heard after the Will Smith slap heard round the world. Jock Peterson got the slap from Tommy Pham over a disagreement they were having about a fantasy football league they were both in. Pham's Cincinnati Reds will visit Peterson's San Francisco Giants starting tonight, and Peterson has called on Giants fans in the media to stay classy and respectful, his words, towards Pham. I hope they oblige him. It's just a nice thing to do. And finally, the last story is about a Missouri man named Dan Bryan. Brian's son, Ethan, who played baseball essentially his whole life, died in a traffic wreck a couple of years ago when he was 16. Someone gave the dad a book by another grieving father who had dealt with his loss by playing catch with someone, somewhere, every day for a year. So on New Year's Day of this year, Dan decided he was going to honor Ethan's memory by playing catch with friends, neighbors, strangers, every day of 2022. And, as part of that promise, Dan Bryan will be throwing out the honorary first pitch tonight when the Cardinals host the Cubs. Baseball, dads, and kids. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick David of BaseballHQ.com. I have my extra innings commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 24th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 24 of the 2022 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest expert for this Friday full edition, Jason Collette from Rotowire and the Sleeper and the Bust podcast. Jason is a terrific fantasy baseball analyst and writer and another genuinely good guy in an industry full of them. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy, and our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, your extra innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to Apple Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Google Pods, wherever you catch your pods, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and that helps us keep the podcast going. If your pod getter of choice doesn't find Baseball HQ Radio, let us know about that or anything else on your mind by emailing to bhqradio at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another Friday full edition featuring an expert interview with Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus, as well as all the usual other great stuff. 
That's Mike Gianella on next Friday's full edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Talk with you again Friday, and for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators, or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.